everybody. Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. My name is Justin, and this is... This is Derek. How are you doing tonight, buddy? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. I uh, kind of had a little bit of a crazy revelation uh, today at work. I realized that at the current moment, I'm kind of reading four books at once. Oh, and, shit. Um, yeah, I, I didn't, it didn't even dawn on me, but, you know, I've been... Huh? <laughs> oh, I, I I just want to take a stab at it at the four. Go for it. Okay. Obviously, you're reading Dead House Gates. Yep. Um, did you did you start rereading Gardens? Nope. Ooh. Okay. That was okay. You're reading one of the Redwall books. Yep. That's two. Vasquez. Martin Warrior. Yep. And Vasquez. Yep. Not, I guess I don't know what the fourth one would be then. I thought. My my guess was he'd restarted gardens. So, I don't know. Um, the fourth one is is called a uh, it's a book by Anaya Gray. It's called Beasts of Beasts of Prey, or something like that. Um, it was just something that was had kind of come up. It, it's more of a young adult fantasy, but uh, has to deal a lot with uh, creatures and 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 stuff like that. Some uh, content around like. I guess like African culture, which I thought was super, super alluring. So I just I've I've only read like maybe fifty-ish pages of it, but I'm uh, probably going to wait until things chill before I continue uh, with that one. It's a lot to juggle. It is a lot to juggle, uh, which is I mean it's fine. It's just I've noticed that. Uh, I usually have two different places where I read and I prefer one of them because there's, there's less distractions. However, the other place, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't really get to like zone in. Yeah. It, it, that can be a challenge sometimes. So I, uh, I would prefer to read, read in my bed, essentially. Yeah. Not so much yeah. other places. That's but, usually where I, I read too. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, one of these days, you know, once I get a, a bigger, a bigger spot and I can kind of designate, you know, just a place to like be creative and set up my desk and, and do that stuff. Just have like a little, like a nice little wall of books and a nice little place, a little comfy chair to read in one day, one of these days. It's the dream. That's the dream. Uh, but what about you, sir? How you, how have you been? Um, not too bad. Uh, looking forward to, uh, I got to get through one more day of work and then I'm off all next week, except for, I'm going to work Black Friday because it'll be double time. Oh yeah. I mean, got to take that and not very busy. Yeah. I don't know if, if it'll be double time plus holiday pay, you know, eight hours. I'm not sure how that'll go or if it's just double, you know, I, I don't know, but It'll be easy money. We're not really doing anything for Thanksgiving this year. We're going to my wife's mother's house, um, which is a, like 15 minutes away from our house. So, Gotcha. Uh, but yeah, we're going to a concert next Tuesday. So took Tuesday and Wednesday off. I had Thursday and Friday off from work. Figured may as well take Monday off too. And then I decided, well, I can, I can work Friday. What uh, what concert are you guys checking out? We're gonna see Bad Omens. And uh, where are they? Uh, it is at 
Uh, it's the same place that we just saw after the burial and Nye Arter's murder. I think that was the State Theater. Is that the place that's like right across the street from the Orpheum? Um, downtown, downtown Minneapolis there somewhere? Gotcha. Skyway Theater, sorry. Skyway. Skyway Theater. Yep, okay, now I know what you're talking about. Oh, okay, yeah, I've been there a few times. Yeah, it's... Uh, um, it's the first time Bad Omens has been the headliner of a tour, which will be pretty cool. Um, and then who else is playing? Um, Thousand Below, uh, Make Them Suffer, and Dayseeker. I don't think I've heard any of those guys. Uh, Make Them Suffer, I've seen one other time. They're from Australia. I think you would dig them. Um, the other two I haven't heard much of, but I did check out Dayseeker, and, and they're pretty good. So it, it should be a good show. It's not going to be uh, – well, Make Them Suffer is going to be probably the heaviest band there. Um, Got it. But uh, Bad Omens, like, they kind of remind me – some of their songs remind me of Bring Me the Horizon. Oh, okay. So that like, that like catchy metal. Yeah, well, they just put out a new album not too long ago, and it's I, I like it quite a bit. And then listening to some of their old stuff too. I mean, even yeah, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's quite a bit different from their previous stuff, which I I really don't mind. I like it when bands try different things. Oh, absolutely. And I know sometimes sometimes people have problems like, oh, why can't you just you know make like your old stuff and like. I'm, you know, it's it's a creative process, and you got to try different things, right? Um, well, right. I mean, there's only so many chords on a guitar or notes, right? <laughs> so yeah, right. Mix it up a little bit. So if you want, uh, if you haven't really heard of them, I'm blanking on the name of their song right now that uh, I really quite like a lot. So give me one second. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you should check out. I got my phone right here. Well, their their newest album was called "The Death of Peace of Mind," um, which is also the name of one of the songs on there. But uh, "Concrete Jungle," is but really that, the whole album is is quite good. Is that the album title, "Concrete Jungle"? No, the the album title is "The Death of Peace of Mind." Oh, gotcha. And that there's a song on the album called that also. So yeah, check them out. But uh, yeah, Tuesday we're going to that. It should be a good time. Good Tuesday night concert. Uh, I just added it to my music library. Sweet. Yeah, it's it, check out. You know, listen to that, and then listen to some of their older stuff, and, and you'll notice a big difference. Um, okay. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been you know uh, putting music off on my trips to and from work because now i'm listening to our podcast and <laughs> oh how far yeah. are you uh i just finished episode two uh so pretty pretty in the beginning and uh, all i gotta say is damn those fucking recording woes like i had my volume <laughs> in the car at max and i could still barely hear me so um yeah yeah we've come a long way sir it was a, it's a bit, it's still a learning curve, but uh, yeah, that, that's okay. Sweet. Well, um, here's the only other thing is uh, I bought the God of War's Ragnarok uh, game, and I've been playing that for, I don't know, I didn't play yesterday, so I'm not very far in it. I maybe clocked maybe an hour and a half into it. So 
pretty good so far. Fucking fucking That's badass. Cool. That's what I've seen. People seem to like it. Yeah. But sweet. Should we get into uh chapter three of Dead House Gates here? Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess as a I guess I don't know how to word it, a, a preemptive warning. Trigger um, warning. Sure. This this chapter deals or there's trigger warning for those who um may have experienced or know someone who has gone through a uh, kind of like a domestic abuse situation along with sexual assault. Uh, please be aware that there will be content uh, and conversations around these subjects. I would go as far as to say it's just rape, but uh, I could also see how you could not quite put it that far but definitely uh adult content for sure right yeah yeah definitely adult adult themes and as a disclosure um yeah just be forewarned that if that type of conversation is upsetting please feel free to skip yeah and i'm sure once we get done recording you know you'll be able to have like the time mark you know skip ahead to x minute or whatever right yeah but, but yeah just a heads up it it comes up yes it does definitely come up um but yeah you wanna you wanna kick off our our epigraph here sure thing chapter three the red blades were at this time preeminent among those pro-malazan organizations that arose in occupied territories viewing themselves as progressive in their embrace of the values of imperial unification, this quasi-military cult became infamous with their brutal pragmatism when dealing with dissenting kin. And uh, as rarely as it happens, we I have been able to kind of deduce the epigraph based on some of the content in this chapter, so we will uh, be referencing some of that in our conversation tonight. Yeah, these. I mean, this one definitely isn't as cryptic. It it almost just. It's more of an explanation, isn't it? Yeah, it it feels like. I think it, that must have been. Well, it tells us who it was written by, but it that feels like a historian wrote that down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Looking looking back after the fact type of thing, but as we the readers are kind of in the moment of the story, it uh, it makes so much sense. Right. Well, you ready to uh, take us away here with the first section? Not really, but let's proceed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Pelazin lay underneath Beneth, shuddering to indicate that he'd finished. Beneth pushes himself off her and grabs a fistful of her hair. Beneth tells her that she'll learn to like it. Pelazin says that she will and asks Beneth if the old man gets a day off. Pulling up his trousers and releasing the grip on Felizen's hair, he says that yes, the old man does get a day off, but Beneth fails to see the point, as it's likely the old man will be dead within a month. Taking a pause for breath, Beneth tells Felizen that she's beautiful and to show him more life next time. He would treat her right. Just show pleasure is all he asked. Felizen replied as soon as it stops hurting. The day's 11th bell had sounded, and nearly everyone would have reached near light by now. Beneth moved within Captain Stalwark's shadow, 
and could do as he pleased. Beneth had picked her within hours of her arrival at Skullcap. Beneth was a big man, bigger than Bowden. Though a slave himself, he was master of all slaves. The guards inside man, cruel and dangerous, but according to Felizen, handsome as well. Felizen had learned fast on the ship. She had nothing but her body to sell. Giving herself to the ship's guards, male or female alike, got more food, drink, and safer parts of the boat for passage for herself, Heberick, and Bowden. Heberick's anger and grief at her had been difficult to ignore at first. Bowden didn't seem to have any words or expressions, but nonetheless got closer to Beneth because of it. Beneth and Bowden had come to an arrangement where if he couldn't be there, then Bowden was to protect her. As they are walking, suddenly Beneth tells Felizen that he'll move the old man to deep soil to plow, instead of hauling stones. Felizen asked if he'd really do that for her. Beneth says that he would, he would because he wants no other woman, and she'll be his queen, and Bowden would be her personal bodyguard as he trusts him. Felizen asks if he trusts Hebrick, and questions this move, as she doesn't see it as any different type of labor. Beneth explains that no, he doesn't trust Hebrick, and the difference between hauling stone and plowing, and tells her the difference between hauling stone and plowing. Ignoring Felizen's question, he tells her that there is food waiting for him. They reach the main shaft, 400 paces to Nearlight. During their walk to Nearlight, Felizen recalls a conversation between herself, Heberick, and Bowden about Ota Terrell not being a natural oar. As they approached the gate to Nearlight, the sun was about to set, bringing the coolness that dispelled the day's heat. Beneth asks the guard at the gate where Pella's doci, doci mate went. Pella grumbles to Beneth about the doci being disobedient and talks of rebellion uh, that this needed to be explained to Salwark. Beneth explains that dos, the doci have always been on their knees. Pella responds by saying that history confronts the dull-witted. Beneth chuckles and asks him where he heard those words because they certainly weren't his. Shrugging, he explains that they were Kellenved's words, taken from Duiker's Imperial Campaigns, Volume 1. Looking at Felizen, Pella asks what's next, as she was Malazan. Felizen shakes her head and says that she isn't familiar with Duiker's work. Sensing Beneth's impatience, she made her way through the gate. With a smile, the guard tells her as she passes that it's definitely worth reading. Felizen and Beneth, Beneth continue to walk on, eventually reaching a couple roads merged to the one they are walking. Dosai houses hug the sides of the road. To the right was Deep Mine Road, and to the left was Shaft Road. They continued walking straight on to Work Road. To the north of the Dosai houses was Sinker Lake. Hebrick had asked Felizen to keep an eye on the water level. With the dry season in effect, in the dim light, Felizen had observed the water level decrease and thought to herself how this would make Hebrick happy to know. As they are walking, Felizen is observing the landscape that was used as a means to escape, and those that were caught were displayed on spikes along the wall, aptly named Salvation Row. Those that made it that far, anyway, were left in the desert for their bones. Work Road circled around a tower called Salwork's Keep. 12,000 slaves lived in Skullcap, in addition, to an, in addition to 300 workers of various trades. 
Finesse speaks and suggests that the bowl of soups will be cold, to which Felsen replied would be a relief. Finesse responds by assuring her that she'll get used to the heat, and in a month or two, she'll feel the chill of the night. Felsen explains that she already does. Beneth then suggests that she move in with him, as he'll keep her warm. Avoiding this question, she sits in silence. Eventually, Beneth warns her to be careful of what she refuses. Felizen tells Beneth that she could take the bed with Bula tonight, or, for she is soft and warm, and Beneth could join in if he wanted. Felizen knew he would, and the thoughts of her moving in would melt away for him. Inside of her head, she tells herself that there is no point in thinking about tomorrow. Heberick's wrong. Stay alive and as, as well as you can, because one day you'll find yourself face to face with your sis sister Tavor and an ocean of blood pouring from her veins. Stay alive and survive each hour and the next. Where should we start with this? Because there's, I feel like there's a pretty good amount of stuff to discuss here. Um, absolutely. I, I mean, part of me, part of me is maybe we just not talk about what is happening with fellows in, um, I guess, I guess the hard part for me is, and maybe this just comes up in, in, in later chapters, but I just have to keep reminding myself what time period this is, you know? Um, but it also like how much, how much is this? kind of a a breach into misogyny a little bit like I, I think we should talk about this because I, I you and i've talked a little bit you know leading up to this and and this is one of the things we disagree on oh yes absolutely uh and that's where i fear as a male that it could be taken out of context and so i don't necessarily know if i want to uh I guess she I did. never felt that you were like you're like yeah, Felicity fucking deserved it. You know, I well, no. I never got that vibe from you or anything like that. So I don't I don't think you have anything to worry about that. We I think we kind of maybe disagree more so in like the wording of things um, than maybe more so the actions. Yeah, um, I mean I I don't what what is happening is absolutely hundred percent wrong. Um, I think I think that. And maybe this is something we should discuss in the next section because I feel like it's a little bit more prominent there, um, mainly okay. because it does deal with um, like the consequences of her actions, if that makes sense. Sure. Because I feel a little bit more prominent in the next section. Yeah, that's fine. We can we can talk about things there. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up, I wanted to benefit, and I I think that's the pronunciation pronunciation of his name but as i like that better kept, i kept finding myself wanting to call him beneath yep yep <laughs> <laughs> um, just i mean yeah i i don't know but uh i feel like it was yeah. one of those things where like it's this is the very first thing that the chapter starts off with and I know that when I first read, I mean, I've read this chapter maybe, uh, you know, two or three times like I always do. But the very first time that I read it, I had to stop after that first paragraph because I, that first paragraph definitely implies very bad things. Um, but as you kind of read on, you get an understanding of her mindset around it. Um, 
Yeah. And I think that's where our differences lie. Gotcha. The, gotcha. the, the why, the why she's doing it. Right. Yes. Uh, Which we can definitely discuss uh, next section, if that's cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, Skullcap I had is just the mining camp within the Dosen pit. And I have to correct myself from last episode because I had, um, when Duiker was talking to the Tapu Hawker, I made the comment that uh, I looked all over the map and couldn't find it, but it was literally right next to Hisar. Um, and so I kind of feel a little stupid about uh, not looking directly right <laughs> on the fucking map. So, yeah, it's across the bay, essentially. Hisar and, and uh, Dosin are across from each other. Wouldn't worry about it, man. Okay. Just wanted to make that known. Um, I, I haven't looked at the map too heavily yet, and I, that's one of the things I love about fantasy books is, is the maps. Um, but these, you know, these ones, there's just... Sometimes it's hard in a paperback book to really get a good look. Well, right, because, um, yeah, you got to, like, pretty much break the spine to see everything. Yeah, and there's just a lot there to look at. The only... Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I guess the only thing that I will maybe potentially make a a comment about as far as uh, fellows in so far here is just, you know, the whole part on the ship where she had nothing but her body to sell, which given the circumstances um, is kind of a, a, you know, a disastrous thing to, to recognize. And it was just crazy, the juxtaposition between um, she thought, to herself that it would have prepared her for uh beneath and it didn't because of i'm imagining his huge penis i shouldn't laugh no probably not but uh, i mean i guess i just go back to like how would society react especially our society react if felizin wasn't a a girl but rather a man you know it kind of goes back to those whole you know, when a uh, female teacher gets with a male student, there's all this hooting and hollering. But if there's a male teacher who gets with a female student, there's all this condemning. You know, um, neither situation is correct, but the way that society reacts to those are like complete opposites. So I don't know yeah. if this is his intent in having something like this in here, or if he's really just trying to protect portray you know uh, the darkness and the bleakness of of this this book so far you know yeah i i, I guess i lean a little bit more that way just the just the, the futility and the extremes that people unfortunately need to to go to to just to make it you know as, as felison says you know just the next hour Right, you know, survive this hour just doing whatever she can, and it, you know, life shouldn't be that hard for anybody. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I totally see that perspective, um, and it kind of seems like, as as Heberick and Bowden are observing this, Bowden definitely has less words uh, for her, but Heberick is is pretty much hammering a bunch of judgment based on her actions. And I think, I think that this is just Heberick 
and potentially Bowden may may not necessarily feel like they need her to do this for them, even though that's totally her motivations for doing it is helping them out. I feel like there's there's other options that Felizen isn't taking into account because of just she's so she's just sees red for her sister, you know. Yeah, I mean, clearly she doesn't see, you know, she sees this as her only way. Exactly, right. Which doesn't make it fair, doesn't make it right. Uh, you know, Beneth is, is definitely taking advantage of the situation. And I think that as Bowden and Hebrick as potentially older mentors are trying to convey this to her, Bowden has maybe gotten to the point where she's going to do what she's going to do. You know, I guess I just always associate it to like when I was a teenager, like I didn't listen to anything that my parents had to say about, you know, sex, drugs and alcohol. Right. I mean, that's about, kind about of what rock she, and roll. Well, yeah, definitely not rock and roll because they were like, that's <laughs> not old music. So you sang in the choir. Uh, Not very well. <laughs> Did you sing in choir? I mean, we had to at church. Um, oh, I was just and, thinking, I did in seventh and eighth grade. I was like, were you in choir too? I no, no, I never did choir as far as far as like school goes. But mm. um, yeah, I, no, 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 it's fine. I just, I feel like those pieces are important. And again, I think they'll be elaborated in uh, the next section. Um, but I had in the summary... Uh, Felizen had asked Beneth a question and he ignores her question, but Beneth essentially, you know, tells Felizen that he needs to justify Hebrick's move and Felizen questions him to whether that's the whole story or not. Beneth at this comment simply just turns his back to her. And that's what is, I would, I meant by ignoring her question. Um, to Felizen, it was clear that Solwark had orders to kill Heberic without it being like political in nature, like taking, like giving him less rations, essentially kind of slowly starving him and also working his body so hard that within a month he'd likely be dead. But here's my question is like, so is Beneth, is he defying, defying orders with having Heberic move to deep soil? Or is there more that he's not telling fellows in? Is there something about deep soil that would have the same effect on Heberick as hauling rocks? You know what I mean? Like, they seem very kind of contradictory to each other. Like, well, I have to have a reason to justify his moves if it, it seems to fellows in that Solwork has orders to essentially let Heberick go the way of the dodo then Beneth moving Heberick to deep soil to plow fields isn't really going to do that like hauling rocks would, you know? Yeah, I, it may be easier work, but I, there's probably something else there. Yeah, and, I just I feel mean, like... Maybe there's not, I guess, but... I just feel like there's something missing there. And um, yeah, I just, I, I just wanted to pick it out and see if uh, we had any thoughts, but... It's definitely one of those things where we don't have much to <laughs> to jump off from as far as is that we know we know the intention of Heberick, but we don't know the consequences of Beneth moving him, you know. Right. Um, we'll just have to 
<laughs> going back to a raffo um yeah an- another thing that didn't really dawn on me until like the third read was uh it that beneath and fellows were doing it within the mines and they are making their way out to the surface thus near light right but also the way that they describe these pathways as like twisting from the Otateral vein, whereas in other places, it's just a straight shot down of Otateral. It took me until summarizing where I really got a clear picture of the environment. Kind of, kind of crazy how much um, more of that made everything kind of clearer as far as the environment goes, you know, just kind of made it a, a bigger picture. Yeah, I I kind of envisioned it as like, this must have been like an offshoot, you know, that probably led to like a dead end. Right, yeah, just kind of like a, you know, it wasn't going to be fruitful as far as mining Ototeril, so uh, Beneth just kind of claimed it as his own place inside of the mine, you know? Yeah, the boys club, basically. Right, exactly. Um, I also thought it was kind of cool that we... We kind of get a little bit more of an understanding of Ototeril, right? Yeah. Uh, was that this section where they talk? Yeah, where they call it not maybe, being natural ore. Did, maybe they, I don't remember if it was the section where they explained some more of that. Um, or maybe that was a little bit later on in the chapter. I don't remember. It. I mean, I guess this is the only one I remember. But, um, you know, in, in their walk to Nearlight and Nearlight's Gate, uh, Felizen recalls a, a conversation between herself, Heberick, and Bowden. And in this conversation, it's explained that Ota Terrell is the bane of magic, was created by magic. And I think this is fascinating. Is it possible that with the creation of Ota Terrell, did this also cause the madness to ensue? As it's likely the intention to block magic would do just that but putting a human error to it, you know, like maybe this is kind of like an unforeseen side effect. Whoever decided to create the bane of magic using magic, probably kind of like stilling yourself, you know, if I were to compare it to like the wheel of time or gentling yourself like on accident, you know, like you create this thing as a means of blocking magic being shown, like shot at you. And but you still have the ability to shoot at them. And I think that this may have just ended up being like some type of side effect where they accidentally like cut themselves off from it instead of what they intended. You know, like a science experiment going wrong is kind of like how I envisioned that conversation. Yeah. I just I wonder because I like like I said, I don't remember if it was in this section or another one, but they talk about how it you know, it must have been just a cataclysmic event that, you know, caused whatever to happen. So I wonder if we'll see that at some point in the, you know, if we'll go back to the past and, and see that event, or maybe just, maybe that's all we'll get out of it is right there, that that uh, tidbit. Yeah, maybe. Um, I feel like that was in the section. Um, I maybe just didn't summarize that. Um I feel like it was later on, but I guess I don't remember. I read this chapter twice and then summarized it. So I, you know, two and a half times basically, but. Right. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you pick anything out about uh, Beneath 
kind of underplaying the Dosai uh, Tapella here? Um, I don't know if I'm sure what you're talking about. Maybe so, if you, maybe I'll jog, you'll jog my memory here. Gotcha. So, you know, Pella is, is the guard. He's a Malazan guard standing at Near Light's gate. And, you know, he has a conversation with Beneth and, uh, and Felizen. Basically, Pella is, is complaining to Beneth uh, to talk to Solwark about the Dosai basically being disobedient. And they're also kind of talking about rebellion, which kind of matches what's happening across the sea, right? So Beneth just simply says, well, that they've they've he pretty much downplays it by saying, well, they've always been on their knees. So eventually they'll go back to it is kind of how I interpreted that. And that's where uh, Pella is just like, makes that, that quote from Duiker's Imperial Campaign, volume one, which were actually Kellenved's words, which is again, contrary because he's Malazan. He's working for Empress Lucene's goals now. But he's quoting Kellenved's words that Duiker wrote about. <laughs> so I, I can't remember what you're talking about. Yeah, um, go ahead and finish. I'm sorry. Oh no that that was that was just my thought. I, I just I feel I th- I think it's funny because it it kind of sounds like the Dosai are potentially an ally to the rebellion. So I feel like there's going to be something that happens uh, with them as we read this book. And I think that the Ota Tarot mines, you know, I've got the feeling that the slaves are going to rebel in some way, shape, or form and maybe cause some havoc and, and yeah, potentially fuck some shit up, you know? Yeah, very possible. Um, I, I think it was kind of in that conversation, but I, I remember feeling kind of confused because they were talking about like numbers and, and population. Um, and I felt kind of confused as to, to who outnumbered who, because I felt like they were saying that the, you know, the commoners like outnumbered the guards, right? Is that right? Or do I have it backwards? No, no, you're absolutely right. It wasn't until later. There's uh, 12,000 slaves. And then there's only a few hundred guards, right? Right. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, there's workers as well, which number in about 300, but yeah, yeah. the ratio from, you know, uh, the enslaved to guards is definitely in the enslaved's favor. Yeah, so and it confused me because all I could think is, I mean, you outnumber them that much. You know, what is that's like? I can't do math in my head, but twelve thousand to it, like that's like thirty, forty to one, right? About that, yeah. But I think it just it just takes a ripple in the pond to why 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 aren't yeah why why aren't they revolt? I mean, you're. Some people, you're going to lose some, yeah, but I mean, you're so easily could overpower them. Right. I think it just probably hasn't dawned on the enslaves, the power that they have, which makes me think that there's something, there's something up there and they're going to have play a part in this, uh, this, this apocalypse or this rebellion, you know, the whirlwind. Yeah. The whirlwind. Exactly. Um, and, you know, kind of after that that conversation with Pella, you know, he looks at Felizin because she was a, you know, fellow fellow Malazin, uh, asks her uh, what's next. And I feel like 
he's looking for something for her to say along the lines of potentially what Kellenved would have done in this situation. Um, and to which she says, well, I'm not familiar with Duiker's work. However, my caveat to that is I find that just a, a little hard to believe being that she is from nobility and being that he's associated to the scenes campaign. Maybe this is a detail as to the nobility as a whole, not respecting or submitting to Lacine's command. Because you'd think someone from nobility is going to, I mean, books, right? I mean, those are things that the rich essentially could only afford. I highly doubt that they wouldn't have a copy of a history book, you know, or taught in some type of formal education setting. So I find it a little bit hard to believe that Felizen isn't or isn't familiar with his work. But at the same time, it's an interesting take on maybe the views of nobility because yeah. Duiker is the imperial historian under Lucien's command. Uh, so to ignore that would be totally total disrespect to Lucien. Yeah, that's true. Um, I guess the only other thing that uh, that I had thought was really cool was the Sinker Lake. And um, I thought it was interesting that some people thought that it was a curse as if you tried to swim in it, you'd disappear. So some thought there was a demon in it, but then Heberick was able to explain that it was due to the lime saturated water, which reduced buoyancy. It's like a reverse dead sea. Right. Yeah, exactly. So um I don't know. I just I thought I thought that that was cool and definitely uh, an interesting bit, right? And I kind of want to know what what it is about it, it sinking or you know the water level coming down, um, that is going to play to Hebrick's plan potentially, or if he's planning something, you know. Yeah, there's got to be something to that because I was thinking the same thing, like. Is there some sort of like cave or something? If the water gets low enough, that'll be exposed. Yeah, maybe. Or if it gets low enough, then they can pretty much just kind of walk walk on the surface because it's so dense. It's so saturated with lime, you know. But they got to climb up the cliff wall on the other side. So, right. So, yeah, I guess overall, I mean, um, outside of some parts, I, uh, I really like this kind of introduction to um, the Ota Taro mines, kind of getting a little bit of the lay of the land, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, just kind of some of the drama that is unfolding, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, I really like this last line in this section, and I think it it just lends itself to my theory um, that there's going to be a showdown between Felicen and Tevur. Felison thinks she's going to take her out, but I still feel like it's going to be Felison's blood coming out of her veins, not Tavor's. Yeah. And um, being that I recently listened to our podcast, Tavor is a year younger than Ganoz. Okay. So they're pretty close. They're pretty close in age. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I mean, I get that. I get where she's coming from. And, you know, it's all about survival. But I think that. Going back to the prologue at the end where, you know, her her whole lessons have just kind of begun type of, of statement that we left off on. I think that her actions are, are 
having consequences that she's never really had to face before, which is essentially a new lesson for her. It'll be interesting to see what happens where, where it continues to go for her. Right. Exactly. I guess, well, with, uh, with that, um, I don't have any other comments uh, about this first section. Do you want to kick us off into the second? Can do. Everick was awake and wrapped in blankets near the fire as Felison climbed through the floor hatch in their little home. Everick speaks and asks if he's supposed to believe that she's come to enjoy the life they have now. Felison only replies that she thought he was tired of judging her. She grabbed a wineskin and looked for a clean cup. She wasn't able to find one and commented that Bowden must not be back yet because the simple task of cleaning a cup is beyond him. She finds a cup that is clean enough and pours some wine. Hebrick tells her she's a lush and that will dry her out. Felison calls him an old man and tells him not to father her. Hebrick curses Tavor that she wasn't satisfied with having her younger sister killed, but turning her into a 14-year-old whore. If Fenner has heard his prayers, Tavor's fate will be worse than her crimes. Felison corrects him and reminds him that she's 16. Felison refilled her cup and sat down near the fire, warming her feet. She told him that she saw him at the carts with Gunnip walking beside him with the switch. Heberick said it amused them all day. Gunnip told the other guards that he was swatting flies. Felison asked if they broke his skin. He said yes, but Fenner heals him well, and she should know that. She reminds him she does know, but she sees pain in him, and it only heals the wound or the flesh, not the pain. He looked at her and said he was surprised that she could see anything at all. Does he smell Durhang? He told her to be careful with that as that ship will take her to some dark places and that she should just probably sell it off as the amount she has is worth a month's salary for a guard. Felson declines and says that she deals with her pain in her own way, just like he does his. Also, anything she needs, Beneth will give her. Hebrick says, is it really giving, though? She says, basically, yes, just as good as free. She then tells him that he's being moved to deep soil starting tomorrow. No more carts, no more switches, no more gunnip. As he closed his eyes, he asked why thanking her felt like it left such a sour taste in his mouth. Quickly, she replied that her wine-soaked brain whispered hypocrisy, and she instantly regretted saying it. Too much wine and too much durhang. She didn't want to hurt his feelings. She took the food she had saved for him and unwrapped it and gave it to him and told him that Sinker Lake had dropped another hand's width. Heberick only stared at the stumps where his hands once were. Felison had more to tell him, but she couldn't remember what it was. She finished her wine, and as she ran her hands through her hair, she noticed Heberick was staring at her chest. She didn't appear to have an issue with this, as she let him stare a moment longer before dropping her arms. She tells him that Bula has fantasies about him, and it's the, quote, possibilities that intrigue her, and that it would be good for him. This catches Hebrick off guard, and he leaves to climb into his bunk. Felison laughs, thinking she only wanted to make him smile, and that she didn't want her own laughter to sound so, so hard. 
She isn't what they think she is, she tells herself, then immediately questions her own thinking. Felston laid in her own cot, and roughly an hour later, Bowden returned. He added wood to the fire, and she could tell that he wasn't drunk because he moved carefully, though she did wonder where he had been. Uh, she wondered where she had been, though he wouldn't tell her. He didn't say much to anyone, and even less to Felison. Moments later, she heard Bowden and Heberick whispering. She could not make out what they were saying. The chat was quickly over, and Bowden, Bowden retired to his own bed. She thought the two of them were planning something, which didn't surprise her, but she was rattled that she wasn't included in their plans. This made her angry as she thought about how she had kept them alive or made things easier, at least. She felt like she was only good enough to be used. Well, she thought, she wouldn't do them any more favors. They can be on their own and see how they like that. And she swore Heberick would be back to the carts as she tried not to cry. She knew she needed Bennett to stay alive, but she needed Bowden and Heberick too. She felt like if she lost them, she will have lost everything. The only conclusion she could reach was that they thought she would betray them, selling them out as easily as she sold her own body. She swore to herself it wasn't true and that she wouldn't do that. She felt alone now. She only had Beneth, his wine, and his Durhang. As she climbed into bed with Bula, she thought it was only a matter of the mind to turn pain into pleasure. Her last thought was to survive each hour. I uh, I really like your comment about cleaning the cup because it didn't even occur to me until I read it that Hebert couldn't wash them because he didn't have any hands. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah I, I, you know, reading it, I didn't think of that. It was it was one I was typing up my you know summary of this part. I was like, oh, well, obviously he can. He doesn't have fucking hands. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, I'm sure probably makes him feel kind of useless, I'm sure. Right. But Yeah, exactly. So we find out Felicin's 16, um, which by, you know, many accounts for, you know, the, the type of story this is. And, and if you were to equate it to, you know, some period of time in our own world, yeah, that that's considered an adult, right? I mean, if... You know, if she's had her period, she's considered a woman, right? Um, but I, I, I just, I, I can't get on board with this. That it's, I, you know, I get that she's doing it to survive, but any one of these people should recognize that it's not okay. That it's, this is a child. Oh right, yeah. No, I 100% agree, and I think that. I think that this stems from her her nobility, like her mind, right? Like her whole life she's had more than others. And this is a kind of a lesser version of that situation where she has her body to sell. And I think that it is giving Hebrick and Bowden the perception that she's enjoying it, you know? And um I, I just it it goes it just kind of plays to the fact that like she's being a little bit arrogant and cold as she's kind of interacting with mainly Hebrick here, um, you know uh, the whole laughing at him about the Bula comment and then um, 
the 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 kind of like snotty way that she responds to him about the uh i forgot already what she didn't mean to be so cold about what was that interaction um yeah what was that i can't you know i just read it here right right but i i, I you know the the my whole thing is she's to me she's i feel like you know she's this durhang must be like weed or crack or some sort of drug, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's doing drugs, she's drinking. Like to me, these are all signals that she's not enjoying this. These she's she's doing this thing to survive, and then now she's doing these other things to escape what she's done. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I guess what I'm going back to is that she. She's taking advantage of the situation, but she doesn't have the the experience that like Hebrick or Bowden would have um, about choosing the right path, if that makes any sense. Like she's to me, she's choosing this this path because it's her only it's it's the only thing that she knows how to do, and that is to be to have something that is useful or to be above somebody else like Hebrick and Bowden can't sell their bodies to get into a better place, so to speak. And I think it just goes to the mentality that she's had her entire life that in, in order to get something done, she has to barter or trade something for it or buy, you know what I mean? Where from Hebrick and Bowden's perspective they 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 recognize that she doesn't need to do this because you know being with Beneth is 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 stationary it's stagnant yes he can give her these things but it's not going to get her out of the situation because he must have been here for a long ass time because he's the king of the enslaved right like he's not going anywhere he's only looking out for himself and and her, yeah, he's absolutely willing to take her under his wing and protect her. But at the same time, his goal is to not get out of the situation. His goal is also to survive. So I think that Hebrick and Bowden are seeing this and being like, whoa, 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 whoa. Bowden, of course, is just not saying anything because I'm imagining that he probably feels that Fellowson isn't listening or won't listen. Um, again, kind of going back to the whole teenager scenario. Um, whereas as Hebrick, it, yeah, definitely casting judgments and that's maybe not the right way to go about it, but at the same time, like he's calling her out on it. He's calling her out th- on her behavior. You know, this is where I think you and I disagree because I don't think Fellison's taking advantage of the situation. She's being taken advantage of. I think like, it's she's, both, right. Like, she's doing what she has to do. And, and I don't think, uh, what's his fuck isn't protecting her. He's just using her. And he says, you know, he wants her, but he'd do the same thing to, you know, the next pretty girl that came through. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I I guess it's hard. I guess it's hard to explain. I agree with you, but what I'm trying to say is that I think she's looking, she's looking at the situation in the wrong way. If that makes any kind of sense, like, she's choosing to kind of go again or go with the grain because of the way that she was raised as, as you know, nobility. Whereas Hebrick and Bowden are like, there's a better way to do this. You know, there's a better way to get what we need. And if we just stick as a team, 
you know, without having to sacrifice anybody's body or dignity or morality or, you know, ethos, there's a way to do it, you know? And maybe there's really not actually a way to do that, but there, you know, yeah, it sh she shouldn't have to resort to this. Exactly. And, and so like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that, I mean, yeah, we do disagree, but I don't think we disagree on the fact that her situation is terrible. I think we're disagreeing right. on that uh the way that she's going about it is is maybe uh either right or wrong yeah it's it, i think it's definitely a point of view thing for us yeah um yeah i just I, I i guess i'm i'm more in this situation i'm looking at it from like i'm empathizing more with hebrick and bowden and just kind of like imagining you know uh she seems a bit arrogant and a bit cocky about her actions like oh like she's lording lording it over over them like hey i'm sacrificing my body so you guys can eat and and have a better work life and Haberick and and bowden are like no 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 no, we don't need you to do that like please don't do that on our behalf if if that makes any type of sense yeah i get that i just feel i feel more so uh beneth should basically know better that this is something he shouldn't be doing and he's just a piece of shit and doesn't right but i mean is that potentially what you know uh Hebrick and bowden are planning are they maybe looking at ways to not necessarily get them apart but you know take them out so she doesn't yeah, have to be. endure this you know and that could very well be a reason why she's excluded or it could be because they simply don't trust her as she kind of states in her own little thought about, uh, you know, selling their loyalty as easily as, as she does her own body. You know, I just, the whole, the, the way that she's treating Heberick in this section is, is, is really dismaying to me because. She, yeah. I mean, she's definitely, you know, she's under the influence and is, is saying things without really thinking that are, you know, probably pretty hurtful. And this right is, to right yeah and this is like when we were when we were texting about it this is kind of where i was coming from like this is a lesson that she has to learn that she's never ha been put you know i mean obviously no one wants to be in the situation but coming from nobility kind of like a, a you know a golden spoon fed life these are one of those things these are the lessons of the real world you know like you don't go selling your body to get what you want. You stick with your friends and you figure it out. You know, you figure out a different way. And I just wonder if if she hadn't been doing this, if Bowden and Hebrick would have included in her plans, you know? Because, like, I think it would be a different scenario, you know, if if she, and again, I'm probably going to get hated for it, but if if she didn't, if she would, if she was just say stop, to Beneth, like, no, I don't want this, but he kept doing it anyway. I feel like Hebrick and Bowden as friends would be like, have her back in that situation, you know, where they, I mean, I feel like they don't, they don't really have a choice because she's, she's doing it for, for a gain on their behalf. So I think it's kind of like this, this like shade of gray. I just, it, it's hard for me to, you know, she thinks she's doing what she needs to do, but man, like any adult should, you know, should know better. Right. And that's just like, I can't get past it. So, I mean, it's just, you know, even if she was the one who approached him, like you just, it's, 
I, I don't know. It's just bad. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying like the, the writing is bad or the stories, but the situation is what's bad. And, right. And that even a fictional character is, is put into that. You know, I think there's, there's plenty of terrible things in, you know, fiction books. I mean, just look at, you know, the stuff in Game of Thrones, you know, as an example. I mean, there's plenty of brutal, horrible shit there, too. And but I I don't know. This just is different. It's different. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I just, you know, I mean, a lot of this is, is based on my own experience, not with what Ben F is doing by any shape of the words, like, that's not where I'm going with this. Like, um, you know, it's almost like a catch 22 as far as our society goes. I, that's just what I struggle with so much is like, like if a 16 year old girl's coming on to me, like, it's just, no, <laughs> like knock it off, shut the fuck up and go to school. And, you know, like just knock it off. Like it's, there's nothing about that. That is a good situation. Right. And that's kind of what, you know, I, I mean, with Game of Thrones, for example, as soon as uh, Arya's older sister, I forget her name. Um, Sansa. Sansa, thank you. As as soon as, you know, she she bleeds, right? As soon as she has her first period, she's married off to Joffrey, which she's got to be 13, 14, 15 years of age, right? And I think that it's just, I think what is happening is it's just kind of a a debate between our society that we live in as as readers and you know this world and a world that these authors are trying to depict and i mean it it feels a bit misogynistic a little bit um i mean they are male authors and they're depicting uh women this way so i i don't know if it's their intent to just kind of like call out our societal norms, especially when it does happen in our world. I guess I, I'm not sure where to take that. So, yeah, it's. I mean, I, it's definitely not a criticism of the writing itself. It's just no. a horrible, a horrible thing in the story. Right, right. And you know, I, I, I know I've said it a few times in various episodes, but it's. I think it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll we'll see more of this. I'm I'm sure, you know, and, and probably her path out of it is probably going to be difficult to swallow. Right? Yeah. Um, I just I just think that this is part of of her 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 journey into learning what it is the outside world that isn't nobility. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that. Her actions have consequences um, and not necessarily the action, but just the way she's going about it, whether she's masking it or whether she's hiding it or, you know, not telling her friends how she really feels about the situation. She's coming across as arrogant and um, the situation between her and Beneth is absolutely, absolutely no go, like never should be happening but I think that the, it's the way that she's reacting to it um, is not healthy. She's not going about it in a healthy, like from a mental healthy state of mind. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I guess that's more or less what I'm trying to convey. Um, I guess when it all comes down to it, I don't condone any anything that we've that we've read. 
you know. I, I never doubted any of that. It was, yeah, it's like I said, it's kind of a point of view thing, I think, where we differ. And, yeah. and that really has not, you know, through a book and, you know, a fifth, we really have not disagreed much. No, not at all. Not at all. I just, I want to be conscious of the fact that I, I am male and uh, it is the perception of males to uh, lust <laughs> after women in very unhealthy ways. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a thing. Right. And, you know, as a male, I'm going to get clumped into that, even though I want nothing to do with it. That is the perception, right? Well, I think uh, we had a pretty healthy discussion on that. Um, I would say so as well. Are you ready to move on? I am. All right. Sounds good. Duiker sat on the seawall, observing the Quayside market and how everything appeared to be just, you know, another day. His gaze fell to that of Admiral Knox's fleet, departing on their month-long journey to Aaron. The departure had not gone unnoticed by Hissar citizens, though. The oppressed had won their first victory, and all to be distinguished would be its bloodlessness to those that followed. Duiker could only assume that Malik Rell was on that ship heading to Aaron, and it was not hard to imagine the things he would be reporting to Pormqual. Just then, a Malazan sail caught his eye. A small transport of some kind, potentially from Dosen Pali, or shortly from further up the coast. Just then, he felt a presence next to him. Glancing over, he saw Culp starting to sit on the wall next to him. Culp tells him that it's done, and instructions have been sent, assuming Duiker's friend is still alive. Culp shuffled nervously as he saw a harbor dory approach the Malazan sail. Two men waited on the deck of the transport as one of them leaned over to speak with the official of the harbor. Suddenly, the oars in the dory sprang out and then quickly did a 180. Duker asks Kalp if he had seen the event transpire, to which Kalp says he did. The transport guided towards the Imperial Pier and Dockman scrambled to receive the cast lines. Horses and men were visible on the deck of the transport ship. Red blades, as all Duker could say. Culp states that they came from Dosen Pali and that he recognizes two of them, Baria and Mesker Satral, brothers. Duker says red blades again, but states that they have no illusions about the state of affairs. Culp asks Duker if Coltane knows. A new tension was building as the crowd in the market stopped to observe the red blades take the pier. Equipped with weapons and ready for war, Culp makes the observation that it appears as if they intend to attack the market. Culp slips off the seawall and heads towards the Red Blades, who had the market crowd backing away into the aisles between shops. The contraction of the crowd would cause panic, and this is exactly what the Red Blades wanted. Lances were ready and bows were notched. To Duiker, the crowd seemed to shiver, but alas, so movement heading into the crowd. Culp also took a half dozen steps toward the Red Blades from his previous position. The figures emerged from the crowd and removed their Tabala cloaks. They were Wiccans, their cold faces held firm on Baria and Mesker. Baria shouts to the Wiccans to stand aside or die. The Wiccans laughed in mockery at this. Duiker quickly followed Culp's wake in Culp's wake. Mesker snaps a curse as he spots Culp approaching. The mage yells out to Baria and tells him not to be a fool, 
The commander's eyes narrowed as he told the mage to refrain from using sorcery or he would be cut down. Mesker chimes in and states that they will cut this handful of barbarians down and properly announce their arrival in Hisar. Culp tells him that if he does, then there will be 5,000 Wiccans avenging their deaths. Culp goes on to explain to Baria and Mesker the brutal details. Coltane is not your enemy, Baria. Sheath your weapons and report to the new High Fist. Mesker yells at Culp, telling him that Baria is not his brother's keeper. Culp scoffs and tells him that they all know the truth of what, of what Baria says his brother will follow. Baria tells his brother enough, and it was not the time for this. Mesker's face was filled with rage and unsheathed his talwar. A mounted troop of Hissar guards approached, weaving their way through the crowd. A chorus of hoots sounded to Duiker and Culp's left. As they turned, they saw three scores of Wiccans with bows drawn, aimed at the Red Blades. Baria raised his hands or hand and made some gesture to lower their weapons. Snarling with disgust, Mesker scabbards his talwar. Culp says dryly to the Red Blades that their escort has arrived, and it appears that Coltane was expecting them after all. Duiker stood at Culp's side as they watched Baria lead the Red Blades to meet the Hisar guard. Duiker talks about the Wiccans that were disguised, and it seemed clear that Coltane had infiltrated the market. Culp replies that Coltane is cunning, and shows that they were willing to lay their lives on the line to protect the citizens of Hisar. Duiker interjects that he doesn't think that if Coltane had been there, he would have ordered those Wiccans forward. It seems that they were there for a fight, not to save the crowd. Culp is rubbing his face and tells Duiker that he hopes the Hisar believe otherwise. Duiker says, come, I know a place in Imperial Square where we can get some wine, and on the way you can tell me about how the 7th are warming up to Coltane's command. Culp laughs and tells Duiker that they respect him, but warmth was far away yet. As they are walking, he explains that Coltane has had them in one formation since the day he took command. Duiker tells Culp what he's heard about Coltane running them to exhaustion so much that they haven't had to enforce the curfew. Culp begins to explain that they practice mock battles, breakout tactics, street control, etc. every afternoon at this ruined monastery. Duiker said nothing on their way to the Imperial Court. When they did arrive, he spoke to Culp and asked if Something of a rivalry between the Wiccans and the Seventh? Culp says that this tactic was obvious, but the mage thinks it's been taken a little too far. As they strode into the square, the historian asks Culp what it was that Coltane had the mage do. The mage tells Duiker that he conjures illusions all day. Illusions of Malazan refugees, a thousand weighted scarecrows for the soldiers to carry around. Coltane orders that his refugees create chaos. The Sorian asks of Sormo Inath. Duiker nodded to himself as he heard Kalp say that Sormo was nowhere to be found. Duiker tells Kalp to organize the squad leaders and to convince them to push the 7th and show Coltane what they are capable of. Come tomorrow, win your objectives, and I'll guarantee a day of rest. Kalp asks Duiker what makes him so sure. Duiker, in a moment of thought, but finally it reiterates that he stated what he stated and to let him deal with the fist. Some pretty good tension here. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, and, you know, not even just tension between the Wiccans and the Red Blades, but with, you know, amongst the Red Blades themselves, you know. And uh, when when the Dory went out to meet the Red Blades transport ship, 
and how quickly they just turned the fuck around. All I can think about was someone was shitting their pants. Because they're like, oh, fuck. I guess I'm not sure I'm following. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I'm assuming that the Red Blade said something to them as, you know, they were approached. What was said, who knows, but I'm assuming it was some type of threat. All I could think was, I touched the butt. <laughs> you know, you made me ill. <laughs> yeah, finding Nemo. I don't know, that's what it made me think of, but... Yeah. Uh you know, we get red blades and red swords. I kind of wish we would just get one one uh wording on that. Um I think I have a uh solution for you, sir. Okay. When Duiker is talking about red blades, he makes the statement that they have no illusions about the state of affairs. The state of affairs is referring to the seven cities and the re- like specifically the rebellion, right? So Duiker along with the statement says that the word has come that they are attempting attempting to assert control in other cities the red blades are and i think that the red blades and the red swords are the same because if we go back to unta in the prologue they seem to be doing just this oh it's, I, i'm sure they're the same thing i just why are we going back and forth on the name i think it's just a like a, a nickname or maybe it's just a lack of respect you know i mean yeah i mean they're definitely i mean based on the epigraph right in the beginning of the chapter it they are very pro malazan and the current state of affairs well rebellion uprising followers of drajana those are clearly anti-malazan so i'm imagining them as killing indiscriminately to those they find following anything but malazan control so i think that from an anti-Malazan point of view, it may be a, a, a red blade sounds more menacing than red swords, you know? It does. It, yeah. It, it, it does. I don't know. It, just blade versus sword. That Yeah, the word definitely has a different connotation. Right. And going back to even last chapter, right, where we heard Malazan lapdogs, that's exactly what the red blades are. They're Malazan lapdogs. So now that brings context into those phrases which if we you know um yeah i guess i, I kind of just had a thought here um i haven't paid attention to this but maybe you have you do you know if uh, i guess the the pro malazan side are those the ones calling them the red swords and the uh i guess rebels are they the ones calling them the red blades more than likely i mean that's a great point i didn't think of that um, it, it just came to me <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Uh, you know, why you would have an entity, but you have two names for them. You know, Red Blades kind of seems a little bit more menacing uh, from that perspective, or Red Sword seems a little bit more like professional, you know? Um, I guess is kind of the only way that I could deduce it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll, I'll, I'll pay more attention to that and see if maybe that's the case. But um, anyways, what continue, sir. No, no, it uh, it just brings me back to this this conversation with with Duiker and the Tapu Hawker. I know that I, I go back to that a lot, and I don't know really why. But in that conversation, if you recall, they talk about them being commanded by a uh, a you know they use Mesla. They use the 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 phrase Mesla lap uh, lap dog, which we don't get clarity until later in the chapter. Um, but they were saying that their commander has a scarred face 
uh, or the face of a demon, right? And I keep going back to the inner interaction with, I think it's Mebra and Kalam when Kalam comes in possession of the Book of Drajana. And I think that like the taboo hawker was alluding to Mebra because he's got scars all over his face. I know he had at least one good one because we're talking about how they're going to give him a matching one or whatever. Right. Yeah. So I think that it's either they're talking about him or they're talking about Bolt, who's got also a fucked up face. So either one of them could be the face of a demon. I'm canceling Bolt out because their conversation was around, you know, Malazan lapdogs and to be careful of spies. Well, yeah. So I'm just I'm making I'm making connections there. Uh, they may be fruitful, they may not be, but I don't know if you're following. Does that make any sense? I think so. I don't really have any disagreements with that. Okay, yeah. Like I said, I could very well be wrong. I mean, Mebra, Mebra definitely seems to be a spy for the Malzan because he, uh, you know, has the Book of Drajana. He seems which like I have a slimy fuck. Right, which I have a theory about this as we kind of go through some of the later sections Ooh. in here. We'll come back to that, though. Okay, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was pretty good. I don't know. It was just something that was said that made me like, wait a second. So, um, but yeah, uh, it just, and and of course, uh, Mesker, the, the brother, who almost got into a fight with his, his brother uh, because of the thing that Culp was saying, which what we find out was intentional. Like, Culp was like, yeah. We uh one less sacral either way is is better off for the world. So I thought that that was that was funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, but Mesker Mesker pretty much calls out that he's going to kill the Wiccan barbarians and properly announce their arrival in Hisar, which just further makes my point about what we just talked about. You know, like they're they're there to fuck some shit up. You're you're doing you're you're doing great here, and I I love listening to you. Oh, okay, okay, all right, uh, cool, good to know. Maybe I'll see some sweet things later. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I am having a beer, but I'm gonna need a couple more for that, Justin. Ooh, only a couple more. I win. I mean, you're not gonna lose. <laughs> no. Yeah, I just uh, I like the section. I like the tension, even amongst the brothers. Uh, I thought it was interesting that we've potentially got some rogue Wiccans here. Uh, I don't, I don't know how. To, do you have any particular feelings about these Wiccans that were in the market? And Culp seems to misinterpret their actual intention here. I mean, I guess I felt was Coltane not in the crowd because I felt I got the sense that he was. No, or, or that he at least like, said he no, wasn't. He, he wasn't okay. in the crowd because Duiker Duiker makes a comment that if Coltane was there. He would have definitely uh, not persuaded the Wiccans to attack. Is kind of what Duiker deduces. I felt like he would have. Coltane would have wanted. I feel like the guy's just a wild man. Like I, I get the feeling like he wants a fight no matter who it's with. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But I think that in his new position of power, he's got some wisdom to him. Um, I think that would have definitely been a terrible mistake to allow the Wiccans to, you know, attack the Red Blades because, again, the Red the Red Blades are pro-Malazan. They're essentially on Coltane's side. 
I think that they're just having some. Yeah, and it would have been a good look. Right. Yeah. I think that the I think the red blades are just having some issues, uh, potentially being commanded by Wiccans who you know have have been anti Malazan before. So I think that there's maybe a little bit of trust trust there that they're not they're not trusting the Wiccans. They're not trusting Coltane. But eventually they get you know escorted to what I would assume is Coltane. Yeah, I think so. Um, any any thoughts on any thoughts on what Culp has been asked to conjure by Coltane about the Malzan refugees creating chaos and these these heavy like scarecrows? I don't know. I just kind of figured like he was conjuring up basically civilians. You know, like they're in some urban combat, and you know you've got to you know you can't just kill these innocent people you got to find your targets and, and you know take them right. out through through all this chaos so i don't know that's just kind of what i took out of it was just he's he's just conjuring up a mess yeah i i, I agree with you but i'm going to take it one step further and i think that this just okay. goes to show what they're preparing for you know um because do or a cult could be conjuring up like legit battles but it kind of sounds like the goal of these like battle reenactments is to save malazan refugees because they're preparing for the rebellion like that is the goal is not necessarily to squash the rebellion but to get those pro malazan supporters the fuck out you know like it almost seems like a uh, like a rescue operation more than it does that's a good point yeah it's like a uh almost like a strategic retreat or something you know they're letting these people run back and they're kind of buying them the time to get out then right exactly they're just they're evac they're preparing for like evacuation is probably a better a better term they're preparing to evacuate these seven cities. I, did, uh, I did not think of that it's just kind of like what i took from it but I'm sure that they're probably doing both because as Culp and Duiker are talking about, they're definitely having conversation about how exhausted they are and how, how far Coltane is pushing them. You know, I, I like that. I did not think of it that way. I just thought, you know, they're just trying to cause as much mass confusion as possible to cause as much stress as possible in this mock battle. Exactly. Um, the only other thing that, uh, and this is kind of, potentially a little bit related is at the end of the chapter duiker has a thought about uh you know time is running out as he's pushing culp to get the squad leaders together and push them to do better as far as coltane's expect ex expectations do you remember that part at the end of the section uh it's not ringing really any bells okay um you know, basically, Duiker is is trying to convince Culp uh, to basically have the seventh do better, <laughs> for lack of a better of better way of explaining it, and he promises that he would deal with the fist and give them like a day off if they did that. Oh, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So you know, Duiker answers kind of Culp's question about what makes him so sure in his head, and along the lines of time was running out, the historian needs Culp and the seventh whipped into shape so they can protect Malazan refugees. I found this interesting because it sounds like Duiker is very aware of the uprising coming 
and potentially there's some foreshadowing there like i feel like that is just alluding to kind of what we're already being like set up for but it also is again it's a bit it's a bit contradicting on duiker's part but it does make it does make sense to me. i mean if he's a historian he's probably i mean obviously we know he's he's been in the thick of battle he's he's probably seen what's led up to the battle so he recognizes these things so do you think Duiker is just approaching every situation with like you know like a neutral point of view like he's neither pro rebellion nor pro Malzan. He's just these are the facts. This is what it is. Whether whether you know what I mean. You know what I'm trying to go there. This is rumor control. Right. Yeah. Like he's just you gonna. Know what movie that's from? That's Alien Three. Oh, <laughs> it's been uh, a while. I've seen that one too. Uh, yeah. You know, you bring up a good point. I I do think he's kind of neutral. He's I he's just I. It, I do feel like he's just there to take note of what's happening, whatever it is. It, it kind of feels like he's he's pushing things a little bit, you know, one way. But I feel like he's just he, he wants God, how do you I'm not even sure how to word it. Just he wants like the authentic experience of it. You know, he, he doesn't want things like I feel like he doesn't want to have this. Uh, how did how do they work before the revised history? Right. Right. Yeah. I think he just what he's doing. He just wants that to be the history. Gotcha. Yeah. No. I mean that makes sense. I just I thought it was interesting that he's he's trying to convince you know Culp and the seventh seventh army to essentially protect those that are Malzan. You know, like it feels like a little bit out of his realm of neutrality. Yeah. But he. Yeah. It's. I, I don't know. It's a weird deal. Yeah. It is. But. I mean, I guess those, I, I don't really have any way of making he- more heads or tails on that, but yeah, I guess I'm comfortable with moving on if you are. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling to put it into words there, but I, I <laughs> kind of feel like I got my, my thoughts across. Yeah, me too, for sure. Good deal. <laughs> All right. Within the first few minutes of the mock battle, Corporal List had died. Bolt was leading the Wiccans and had clubbed List like a baby seal, then threw him over his shoulder and took him off the field. After dropping List off, he jogged over to Coltane and a few other officers to to watch things unfold. Coltane yelled for a healer for the unconscious List. Coltane eyed Duiker and said that he saw no change from yesterday. Duiker said to wait as it was still early. As they watched the mock battle soldiers, as they watched the mock battle, Soldiers still received bumps and broken bones. Bolt spoke up and said this day was different. They saw more Wiccans succumb to the 7th. This time was different. The battle had shifted. Bolt called for his lancers and told his uncle or nephew, told him to stay put as the horsemen approached. They didn't carry real lances, but blunted ones. But even that will still give a painful lesson. Bolt said it was about time. Duiker asked what he meant. Bolt explained that the 7th should have earned Lancer support a week ago. Coltane figured it would take time to toughen them up, but all they did was fail. So who gave them this new life? Was it Duiker? If it was, he should be careful or Coltane would make him a captain. Duiker defers and said it was not him, but Culp and the squad sergeants. Bolt assumes that Culp is taking it easy, and that is why the 7th is winning this time. Again, Duiker deflects and says, 
Culp follows Coltane's instructions to a T, and if he's looking for a fault, he will have to look elsewhere. Duiker asks about Coltane calling him his uncle or nephew. Bolt says, what of it? Duiker asks if he is. Bolt asks what he means. Is he what? Duiker relented and let it go, but felt like he was starting to grasp Wiccan humor. The seventh was celebrating their victory. Bolt told Duiker to give Culp his regards when he saw him next. Duiker said the seventh had earned a day of rest. Bolt asks how he figures they earned a day of rest for one measly victory. Duiker says they need to savor it, enjoy it, and they need time to heal. The healers will be busy. You don't want healers with exhausted warrants at the wrong time. Bolt asks if this, quote, wrong time is soon. Duiker thinks this is the case and that Sormo Enath would agree too. Bolt hocked a loogie on the ground and said his and said his nephew came closer. Duiker asked if that was a smile he spied on Coltane's face. Bolt said he must have been seeing things and to take word to the seventh, they earned their day of rest. I found this section interesting, but almost kind of a little disposable. Um, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you basically, we learned that the seventh up until this point have just been drubbed every time by the Wiccans. And, you know, I, I feel like this is in for like a hockey term. This was the seventh miracle on ice, 1980, you know, <laughs> nine times, nine times out of 10, the Russians win, but not, not today. This is, you know, we win today. This is their one out of 10. Um, but yeah. Like, you know, Bolt calls, Coltane, his nephew or uncle, whichever way that went. And, you know, <laughs> and so Coltane's asking about it, like, well, are you? And he's like, what are you talking about? Just, is he just fucking with them? Like, I, I don't know. It's kind of hard to read, read what he's thinking. Yeah, right. And and from what I understand, Bolt is is uh, Coltane's uncle, because from what I understand, Bolt is is way older. Um, So I, I guess I don't, I don't have a particularly a lot of things to talk about outside of, like it was a really cool section to read. I mean, granted, it was really short, which I feel like if it would have been any any longer, it would have been um, more throwaway. Yeah, just you know, we we I think it's just a little bit of payoff from the previous section, right? And and setup, right? Like you know, uh, Coltane with the the smile that was spied potentially, right? Like. Obviously, there's there's some intermingling that is happening, some trust that may be forming uh, as far as Coltane is concerned. You know, he's definitely seeing things take a turn, and uh, everybody's starting to work as kind of like a unit. Uh, so I, I think it's just, I think it's a setup piece, definitely transitional as far as Coltane uh, in command goes. Yeah, yeah, I I, I don't really have anything to add beyond your comments there so if there's anything else you want to chime in there otherwise we could probably just move on i'm okay with that sounds good all right fiddlers sat outside in the darkness on a bench in an overgrown garden no moon was in the sky but he sat looking at a small patch of stars he cocks his head and compliments crocus on how quietly he approached crocus joins fiddler on the bench and Crocus states that the sapper wasn't expecting to have any rank pulled on him. Shaking his head, Fiddler responds to Crocus by asking if that's what it was. Crocus tells Fiddler that, yeah, that's exactly what it seemed like to him. Fiddler sat in silence, not responding to this. Crocus breaks the silence and tells Fiddler that Apslar is upset. 
Fiddler snidely responds by telling Crocus that it was just an argument and it's not like they were torturing prisoners. Crocus responds to this by saying that she doesn't remember any of that. Fiddler responds back by saying that he did remember those memories and those memories were hard to shake. Crocus replies that she's just a fisher girl. The The sapper admits that most times, yes, but sometimes... Fiddler just shook his head as if not to continue. Crocus sighs and changes the subject of Kalam running off and leaving all alone. Fiddler responds by saying that old blood calls, and besides Kalam is seven cities born, as well as to meet the Shaikh. Crocus is exasperated as he calls out Fiddler's defense of Kalam, whereas a few minutes ago he was practically calling Kalam a traitor. Grimacing, Fiddler explains that it's a confusing time comparing empress to city and city to empress. Crocus interjects that this is a moot point. The sapper, in his response, tells him to ask the girlfriend about this, as she could explain it to Crocus. Crocus doesn't respond to this, but rather states that Fiddler and Kalam are expecting rebellion. And on top of that, they're counting on it. Fiddler explains that they don't have to be the one to trigger the whirlwind and defends Kalam in the reasoning, Krakas calls them out for this again and continues on to state that the plan was always been to assassinate Lucene, not to get caught up in some uprising. Fiddler, taking a moment to look at the stars, tells Krakas that there is more than one road to Unta. They're here to find a road, one that has probably not been used before and may not even work. They'll look to it with or without Kalam. And hell, maybe it's better that they are separated anyway. Snapping, Crocus asks the question if Kalam does what if Kalam doesn't make it? Throwing insults about Fiddler attempting to take on the Empress, Fiddler dishes some shade back. Branches opposite of them started shaking, and Moby appeared with a risen lizard in its mouth, bones crunching. Fiddler begins to explain that back in Quan Tali, they'll find more supporters than could be imagined. Crocus snaps at hearing this, calling out Fiddler for thinking he's stupid. He knows what's up. If Kalam can't kill the Empress and the Sapper can't do it, then you have another shaved knuckle up your sleeves. There's another who could take out the Empress. One that was possessed by the rope of assassins, maybe? You're taking her back because she isn't what she once was, but you would prefer that it it was that way. The Sapper simply tells Crocus that he doesn't think that deep. Speculative Crocus asks Fiddler if Absalar never occurred to him. If not him, then Kalam? Fiddler was hesitant in his response, but finally shrugged and explained to Crocus that if Kalam hadn't thought about it, Quick Ben would have. Crocus was like, ha, got you, fucker, I knew it. Crocus would never let it happen. Fiddler changes the subject here and focuses attention on Moby. Fiddler wonders why Moby is here if Mammon is dead. Fiddler had the understanding that familiars were magically infused with their masters. Crocus uses this to his advantage and explains that if that is true, then they'll have to go through Moby as well. Fiddler reassures Crocus that he won't be doing anything, but comes back to his point about Crocus having some growing up to do. And sooner or later, Crocus will have to realize he can't speak for Absalar. She's going to make her own decisions, and what if she does want to harness her skills? Crocus responds to all this by saying, rather unconfidently, that she won't. She would never do that. Fiddler changes the subject and tells Crocus what species Moby is, and he's native to this land. Fiddler goes on to tell Crocus to get some sleep as they'll be leaving tomorrow, as will Kalam, two journeys paralleling each other on their journey south. I just, I thought this was a a really cool scene. Like, I can see, I could see, you know, the environment that they're in and kind of the interaction that they're having is, is pretty heated, 
you know, and it just kind of seems like, you know, Kalam and Fiddler literally just got done arguing and Fiddler just went outside to, you know, take a mental break kind of, you know, I imagine like if you get into an argument with somebody, one of them just steps outside to get away from the situation for a little bit is kind of like what I imagined in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. The, the interesting thing I felt about this was, you know, Crocus is arguing with Fiddler about this, but it, like it feels like he's growing up to me. I don't know how you feel about it. Like he, he doesn't he doesn't seem like a dumb kid. Like he's he's very aware of what is happening around him. Right. Yeah. And I feel like Fiddler, what he's saying about him having a lot of growing up to do. I think that Crocus is just he's kind of at the beginning of that that stage that arc. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's obviously going to take some time, but he's he's taking steps towards it. I think. Yeah, and he's making like really astute observ well not maybe not even astute observations, but he's making a lot of of observations. Um, especially with now as the reader we're finding out kind of the maybe the true motivation as to offering to take uh Absalar home. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that their intentions maybe weren't as uh noble as he thought when they started. Right, exactly. And I just, I thought this was a really good section as far as just the, the character interactions here. And I mean, you have to remember that like Fiddler and, and Crocus, I mean, they definitely know each other at this point. They've gotten opportunities to get to know each other, but there really isn't that like that bond between the two of them, if that makes any type of sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So one of the things that I had, and this is kind of a, a two-parter, uh, in in Fiddler's defense of Kalam, it he kind of explains that Kalam wants to be in the heart of things, and that's kind of how he's always been. And him's the you know the Book of Jarjana essentially literally fell into his lap is kind of an argument that Fiddler makes. Um, and the Book of Jarjana holds the whirlwind goddess. To begin the apocalypse, it has to be opened. And only by the Cirrus and no one else. It might be suicidal, but Kalam will deliver it to Shaikh's hands. So I thought it was cool that uh, we get kind of an understanding on, on what is exactly going to bring the whirlwind or the apocalypse, so to speak. But this was also the part where I was talking about the Red Blades. In Fiddler's defense, the saying fell into his lap is kind of it's jarring to me for some reason. It's just not sitting right with me. And I'm wondering if this is a setup of some kind. Did Mebra set up Kalam? And that being, yeah, yeah. Like I just, it almost seems too easy that he just haphazardly came across the book of Jarjana. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think Mebra set him up. Instantly he's got guys tailing him. Exactly. He's but why would he so here's my question and um why would he give kalam the actual book of drajana if the intent was to set him up my guess is that the book is uh, a fake he gave him a fake book i don't know i don't know that i think that i don't think he stole anything from aaron i think that he's literally just trying to you know, do what the red blades do right and squash the rebellion like that's pretty much their whole purpose is to take out 
what is not Malazan. Lapdogs. You do you, th you think that Kalam's going to be fooled, though? Well, how is he supposed this, to know? He probably knows something. Because this, they talked about the book, and it's like the, the cover from the book is made from Jinrabi, like shell or skin or whatever you want to call it. Like, And I can imagine those things are hard to kill, right? The giant yeah. sea centipede fucking things. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I think it's a fake. It could be, but I, th I think it's... Maybe it's just... I mean, why would you risk the chance of it getting into her hands if it's purely meant to be a setup? Like, it has to be, a like, a decoy. But he talked... Remember, talked about how he... You know, they couldn't have... He couldn't have imagined a better person to run into. You know, when when he takes the book, you know, he won't... He, I feel like he wanted somebody to take it, but he wasn't expecting anybody as important as Kalam. Yeah, but, I mean, if you have the book... And he's clearly, you know, a spy uh, for the Red Blades as far as to the Rebellion or, you know, people associated with the Rebellion. Why the fuck would you, if you were to take the book, why would you be carrying it? Why wouldn't it be locked away? Because if no one has it, the apocalypse can't be brought. So why yeah, would you right. be carrying it out so they want it to start, they, No, I think they want it to start because they want they want to kill the Shaikh. And maybe we talk about that later. I don't remember when, but I, I get the sense that they don't know where the Shaikh is, but Kalam has an idea. And so that's why he gets the book and they're going to follow him there. Maybe. maybe. Might be a day or two behind. That's, that's what I was getting out of it. This hmm. is interesting because I don't think we've ever disagreed this much in a chapter before. <laughs> I, I just, there's just so much going on. And I mean, I just, I keep going back to the intent of the red blades, right? Like, they, they, yeah. I mean, of course, they want, they want to find Shaikh, but why would they risk the potential of giving her or giving them the book when you could just give them a dupe? And she, if it does fall into their hands, nothing happens, and they're quick on their trail. You know, I, I mean, don't, I don't, I don't think they care about that. They're, they're looking for, for a war to start because they say, you know, there's, you, they said they're going to need an army to take the Shaikh out and they say, don't worry about it. Like we got it covered. Hmm. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of information that's contradicting both of our arguments, but uh... <laughs> we, we both have our hills. <laughs> yeah. 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 It'll be, it'll be interesting. I just, something, just something with the whole way he is defending Kalam and the whole fell into his lap just makes me feel like it's not authentic you know um what isn't authentic i i only have speculation based on the very little that. information that i have so <laughs> but hey i mean this is one of the things that like we talked about in our prologue was just you know hopefully there's some there's moments in these books where we don't agree on and uh there's definitely there's been a few there's been a few not many, no. But it it does make it more fun, and not like I'm like, oh, I'm so right and you're so wrong. But it's like, hey, like you know, here's my point of view, here's yours, and right. and I feel like we've generally come to kind of a middle ground. Yeah, I mean, I think that both of us can agree that something something is is going to happen with this setup. Um, we just aren't sure which side that's going to be on. <laughs> right. Um, I guess moving on from that. Uh, going back to kind of Crocus a little bit and maybe his 
his uh, rise in, in some maturity, he's fucking pissed. And he makes a good point about Absalar and uh, Kalam and Quick Ben and and Eve. And so, you know, go back to the, the epilogue in Gardens of the Moon, um, the whole plan that Whiskey Jack wouldn't like. I think that this is definitely part of it. I think that they're trying to push Absalar into remembering how to possess the rope skills because this aligns with Heberic as well. He's the Fenner tattoos help heal his wounds, but he is an ex priest of Fenner. So um, maybe at one point in time, Fenner inhabited Heberic's body or just gave him kind of like an opon type gift and even though you're not associated with them anymore you still have some of their traits does that make sense yeah i mean that could be i just i'm definitely very very intrigued about absalar possessing cotillion's uh skills i could i could see how that could be the case i mean they might be buried deep down but could be I, i don't know why that would be out of the realm of possibility yeah, I kind of, I guess I, 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 you know, looked like thinking about it, like I kind of associate it with like muscle memory, you know? Yeah. 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 Like it's been a long ass time since I've ridden a bicycle, but I could totally hop on one and do it. Yeah. I mean, why couldn't you? Like, yeah. you, just, you don't forget that. Um, I guess outside of the, the tension and the, 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 you know, the continuing growing of Crocus's character arc and Kalam and Fiddler's argument um and just kind of the scenery the only thing that i've taken an, uh, out from this is going back to your theory about moby because <laughs> i was going to bring that up if you didn't yep yep no i made a whole documentation about it uh fiddler uh was under the understanding that familiars were magically infused with their masters and i think this is the key line here and if this is true then Moby is essentially like Mammoth's home in Florida or vacation house, right? So is it possible that when the Jag Hut was distracted by all that was happening, Mammoth used that opportunity to transfer his soul into Moby? Because we've seen soul shifting with a numerous amount of characters and in a wide variety of objects. So I don't think it's possible or it's outside of the realm of possibilities or, or, this is probably less, this is probably more far-fetched, but some resemblance of Mammoth's soul have made their way to Crocus. And Moby, Moby is picking up on this. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So, because like, you know, Riga, uh, she would capture souls in those tallow candles. Hairlock was souls transferred to a, essentially a wooden puppet, you know? It doesn't necessarily have to be animate objects or, you know, things in animation. It can be inanimate objects. So I don't see why it would be too far outside of the realm of, of possibilities. But so I'm totally, I'm totally 100% on board with your mammoth theory and Moby. Well, I, I kind of hope I'm right. But what, <laughs> uh, what kind of role is he going to play, I wonder? Well, we'll I don't wait and see. I think, yeah, I think it really kind of depends upon the body. I mean, maybe Moby is just there to give Crocus some type of backup uh, magically. I don't, I mean, 
it it sounds like based on the section it is one of those bat-like creatures that we got introduced to in the last chapter um so you know uh maybe this is a like servant of iskarel iskarel is uh you know he seems to be part this bat creaker creature i don't even know how to say their name borakal yeah i mean i feel like there's similarities there too much to ignore I, I can't help but think we're going to find Moby fucking a coconut at some point. <laughs> oh, Jesus. It's, it's just an MFC. It's an MFC. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry for that. Yeah. Nah, it's my brain good. thinks, Justin. That's uh, what I think about. That's what you think about. Um. <laughs> I guess outside of outside of that uh, very argumentative and, you know, I, I guess I could just, I could put myself in that situation because, you know, I've had arguments with people and I've had to get away and, and get closure. So I can totally kind of relate to what Fiddler is experiencing here. But outside of that, I don't, and, and the things that we talked about, I don't really have anything else to, to point out. I have never once argued with anybody ever. Never. Hmm. never interesting so this must be your first time <laughs> yeah that's okay. a lie <laughs> i know all right should i uh carry us on here carry on my wayward son you play that on guitar hero i do yeah i'm actually i like that song on guitar hero <laughs> not not bad at it we're gonna have to play sometime i agree we'll have to figure that out all right a short distance inside Caravan Gate was a town square where the land traders set up shop before leaving Erleton. Most headed south along the coastal road the, that the Malazans had built, as villages were plentiful and well patrolled. Well, or would have been if the Fist had not recalled all the troops from the outlying garrisons. Though, from what Fiddler had learned so far from the locals was that not too many of the undesirable types had taken advantage of the situation. Partially because merchants were taking no chances and had plenty of heat or mercenaries, it didn't make any sense for the three of them to disguise themselves as merchants as they didn't have the money or equipment to pull off such a feat. So they decided to travel as pilgrims. The Path of the Seven was something the most devout did, visiting each of the seven holy cities as an act of faith. They would not be bothered by bandits or war. Fiddler held on to his disguise as a grawl. Crocus and Absalar pretended to be a newlywed couple. Kalam had also left that morning with little fanfare, instead speaking most of his goodbyes the night before. Fiddler knew Kalam was anxious to get after the Empress and try and take her out of the picture. All the same, Fiddler felt like this was a big risk, especially for whoever took the throne after Lacine. Fiddler felt a little lost with Kalam leaving. While they were together, they had a common purpose, which mirrored friendship as much as anything else. But now Fiddler felt like that was gone and had nothing to take its place. He felt as lost and alone as he ever had in his life. As they left the caravan gate, they were stopped by a group of red blades. He heard the cry for growl. He stopped and spit on the ground in front of the blade who stopped him. One of the blades spoke up and said one day they would cleanse the land of the Grawl. Fiddler didn't have time for this nonsense, and spat back at the blade and said if he had something worth speaking to get on with it. It was already late in the day, and they had far to travel. The blade said he had but one question. Did they see a man on a roan stallion ride through the gate this morning? 
If he lies, the blade will know. Fiddler says he saw no such man, but he wished him well. The blade said his blood was no match for for him and again asked if he was here in the morning. Fiddler reminded him that he was afforded one question anymore and he would need to pay coin for an answer. The soldier spat and walked away. Crocus asked what all that was about. He said they were looking for someone, but it didn't concern them, and to get on his horse, they needed to leave. Crocus asked if it was Kalam they were looking for. Fiddler said that word may have spread that a holy tome was no longer an errand, and someone is going to bring it to the Shaikh, but no one knew Kalam was here. Crocus didn't appear to be sold on the idea and said that Kalam had met someone last night. Fiddler said it was an old contact that owed him. Crocus said that's a good reason to betray someone. No one is a fan of being reminded they have debts. Fiddler didn't say anything and patted his horse to get a move on. The horse gave him a little attitude, and he told it to behave or it would live to regret it. As they left the gate, Fiddler was most worried about running into an actual Grawl tribesman, but thought the odds were slim since they would be migrating with their herds to where water and shade could be found. They rode their horses around around a caravan to avoid all the dust in the air. They were headed for a small village named Salik, which was about 8 leagues or 24 miles roughly. If things went semi-according to plan, they would be in Gadanispan in about a week and Kalam maybe three days ahead of them. Beyond that was the Panpots in Odhan, a desolate waste full of death. And, Fiddler thought, a convergence which he didn't like the sound of. He thought about the conch shell from Kimlock and thought about if a soul taken stiffed it out. They would be easy pickings, so he decided he would sell it. They would probably be better off with the extra cash anyways. Crocus asked Fiddler what he was thinking. Fiddler said nothing and was wondering where his flying monkey went. Crocus says he took off last night, so he must have been a pet. He just kind of ran away, but he felt like Mammoth was with Moby and him. Fiddler asked if his uncle was a good man before he was taken over by the Jaghut. Crocus nodded in agreement, and Fiddler said then his uncle was still with him. Moby probably just smelled others of his kind since rich families tended to keep them as pets. Crocus said he figured he was right, but he always thought of his uncle as a scholar and as an old man who wrote things down. But when he found out he was a high mage who was powerful and had powerful friends like Baruch, before he could even process that he was dead, Fiddler gets a little defensive and says what they killed wasn't his uncle. Crocus knew this and acknowledged in what they did saved Darugistan. Fiddler told him it was over and that he should remember having an uncle that loved him and took care of him was way more important than, being, than him being a high priest. And his uncle would have told him the same thing. Crocus is hung up on the power that his uncle had, but didn't do anything with it. He just hid in his room where he could have made a real difference. Fiddler wasn't prepared for an argument and asked if she kicked him up here for being moody. Crocus gave no answer, so he looked behind at Absalar and asked if it was a lover's bet. She looked back at him sheepishly, and Fiddler turned back forwards. The only thing he could say was, Hood's balls! <laughs> uh, the end here kind of reminds... Uh... Traveling with people you're not really a fan of. <laughs> Why know? do you say that? Just, you know, uh, I don't know. I guess I just always go back to, you know, when I played football uh, in high school. I never really cared for uh, my teammates, which is probably why I didn't last very long. Um, it just, you know, 
the travel the travels to like Mankato to Rochester on the bus were annoying. So I guess that's kind of uh I have some personal experience with what Fiddler is going through and uh, I guess I can relate. I guess I'm on the other side of that. I mean, traveling for hockey that was even though I was like the quiet one and and didn't I it was it, and I know a football team's a lot bigger than a hockey team, you know, but you know to to go back and get one more game with the guys, man, I I would give about anything for that. Yeah. I mean, do I miss it? Yeah. Did I take it for granted in that situation? Oh, for sure. But I remember being very annoyed. <laughs> so, um, I thought it was really cool. The whole pilgrim tidbit at the very beginning here. Um, you know, they would not be bothered by bandits of, of, uh, or war because of how they were disguised. So that, that is interesting. Cause you just think like, you know, if there's like a group of bandits and they're just, fucking somebody over and they see these three walking by they're gonna be like oh they're pilgrims we're gonna leave them alone but these guys are fucked mm -hmm. or, or i mean could they walk through the middle of like a literal battle and would it like part you know like the red sea <laughs> you know like maybe what are we talking about here you know it's it is interesting to think about yeah i mean i, I hope we get some more uh world building around that because like it would be really cool to kind of uh you know understand some of that um but I feel like we will because, if, uh, you know, again, I feel like, again, the, the the theme that I'm catching very early on in this book is history, right? Like, I think that we're going to get a lot of, or I hope, I should say, we get a lot of world building around, you know, the seven holy cities. So, yeah, yeah I hope so. I, I hope we see more of these other cities. Um, I don't know if we will right now or not, but I, I keep wondering you know, Crocus and Apslar pretending to be married. Is he going to catch more fields for Apslar here this way? I kind of think he will. I mean, in their current state of affairs with their lovers spat, probably not in the moment, but yeah, potentially I could see, I could see where you're going with that. Yeah. I mean, cause this, it's, it's going to be a longer journey and they're just going to have this time to bond. And uh, That's true. I guess, you know, looking at it from a romantic point of view, like I could, I could see that. Although, I feel like Crocus would kind of grumble and maybe not look at it like that because he's already complained about the heat and the smell of things. So, yeah. I feel like Crocus is like a young Al Bundy. <laughs> you ever watch Married with Children? You know what no, I'm talking about? I, never, I know who you're talking about, but I never watched that show. Uh, I yeah, I, I haven't seen like every episode, but I've seen it here and there. Enough, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing, you know, just you, you get, we get uh, Fiddler's kind of emotions on Kalam going and just really is like a sad little puppy just being abandoned, right? Right. Yeah. And it, it, to go back to your, you know, your football analogy, like that really hit home for me in, in that sense. I mean, I, I never served in the military, but you hear stories from these guys, you know, they would, that are willing to do anything, you know, for the guy next to him, you know, they'll jump on a grenade, you know, all these things to, to do whatever they can for the guy or, or girl next to him. Um, and, and even the same thing in sports to a lesser extent, obviously, you know, I mean, you're, you'll block your shots or, you know, you're, you're blocking a guy, you know, you, you take a big hit to make a catch, whatever it is, but then it's just done. You know, you get to a point where you're just done and you don't have that anymore and you just long for that 
really that brotherhood, that companionship. And, and now he's just lacking that. And, and so I can really relate to that. And it, it kind of hurts. It, it makes me remember my days of high school hockey and just, you know, I, I wasn't the star of the team. I never scored a point in high school. I never even had an assist, but just being on the ice with the guys, you know, you make a hit, you block a shot, the bus ride, you know, to and from just the pride of putting on the Jersey, just all that stuff. It all built up and, and it all, and, and then it's just gone. Right. And you don't really know what to do with yourself after that. And it's, it's hard to reckon when you, when you don't suddenly have that companionship, that, that brotherhood, that camaraderie. Right. Which, you know, uh, that was very elegantly put. And I feel like that maybe makes me change my perspective about uh, Fiddler maybe being annoyed, which, you know, he probably is annoyed, but I think that it's because of his current emotional state that you so beautifully described you know (laughs) thank you he's so caught up in in kind of his own feels that he just he doesn't have the mental capacity to uh accommodate for for crocus's little bit of of whininess here uh which again you know he's he's showing moments of of growth and wisdom but at the same time he's still got these these moments of of being a little whiny bitch so yeah well i I mean what position did you play in football? I played football, or I played fullback and middle linebacker. So, like, you know, you always hear these analogies, like, oh, you're in, especially in football, you know, you're in the trenches, you know, you're you're going to war, like, you know, you know, you watch like Saving Private Ryan or or really any war movie, you know, you just these guys literally do anything, like it doesn't matter what it is, and you know, then something happens to their guy and they just lose their minds. Right. Yeah. And nothing, nothing's happened to Kalam yet, but he's just not there. He just doesn't have him now. And I, I just feel like he doesn't know how to deal with that. Just physically not having him there, even though nothing that bad has happened yet. It's, it's hard to deal with. Well, right. And, you know, I, the previous night before they, you know, got into a huge argument. So I'm sure that doesn't make him feel any better either. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, that's uh, I like that. Good work, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, the whole horse bit gave me some Dujek vibes. Like, is was he nervous he's gonna get his arm bit off by the horse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I laughed at that when I read that in your summary. I'm like, yep, I see that. I see that. Yeah. I uh, I really liked Fiddler's defiance of the red blade here. Like, I thought that was just expertly done. Yeah, I like. I did like a lot of this. I, I don't know that I really had anything that I wasn't a fan of in this section. No, I thought, I mean, it's definitely a transitional piece. I feel like there's not like a ton of information to like dissect, but there's definitely a lot of emotions, um, a lot of interactions between these characters. Um, and that part is really cool. I, uh, I'm, I'm not really a fan of Fiddler's thought on the conch shell though. I kind of feel like if he does sell it, it's going to be a big mistake. I don't know if you feel that way at all either, but I don't know how I feel on that. It's, you know, it seems like a risk reward thing and, and it just seems like he doesn't feel like the risk is worth it. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's possible that it could be some type of beacon for, you know, those that are converging out in this desert scape, but I feel like that's not its purpose. 
Yeah, I don't really know what its purpose is. And, you know, if maybe he won't even end up getting rid of it. I don't know. But if he does, then maybe that's just kind of the end of it. Yeah. I feel like he might meet somebody who uh, maybe knows a little bit more about it and that maybe changes his mind on selling it. Uh, but yeah, I, that's just me stabbing at the air. Yeah. That's okay, though. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I guess I, uh, the whole Moby thing here, I thought that that was interesting that the pet or Moby is just gone. And so Crocus just assumes that it, it couldn't have been Moby after all. So I don't know if, I don't know what the author is intending for that. I don't know if they, like, he's still just trying to like add something in to make the reader doubt whether it is Mammoth or not. But I think it's interesting that it's just kind of like, oh, he's there. He's hanging around. He's been there this whole journey. And then all of a sudden he's gone. Yeah, did he find some way to like help the cause somehow, and that's why he took off, or is it, or is this where he's just off fucking the coconut? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> then we'll have to wait and see, I guess. But yeah, yeah, that was. That's basically all I had for this section here. Yeah, me as well. well. I just thought the Moby thing was jarring, and that makes me think there's something there. So I feel like there's something there too. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're uh, if you're ready, I'm I'm ready to cap off my last section here. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, man. Sweet. Uh, Iskarel was frantically poking a broom up a chimney. Mappo suggests that Iskarel use fire. Iskarel pauses and asks Mappo if wood is better than a broom. I can imagine the trowel rolling his eyes, but tells Iskarel that it would take the chill out of the air. The high priest in his craziness says wood, no, but plenty of dung. Yes, shit. Plenty of shit to set on fire and burn them to a crisp. He then rambles on about the cunning of the Trell and how he had no idea because there were rare writings of such intelligence, as Trells were thought to be illiterate. Mappo informs the high priest that he is wrong and that the Trells were very literate, and they've been that way for eight or nine centuries now. His Karel at least now acknowledged the statement and told Mappo that he must update his library then. Expensive an endeavor like that would be. Mappo clears his throat and asks what they are burning to a crisp. In crazy is a is Karel fashion, he tells him spiders. Use anything you can to kill those dreadful things. Mappo pulls a blanket over his shoulders the hide slightly brushing his wound on his neck. The fever had broken due to his own reserves, as well as the suspicious medicines and ointments Iskarel's servant had applied. Bites and scratches from divers and soul taken caused sickness. For many that survived, the madness remained, reappearing one or two days for about nine days a year. Iskarel believes that Mappo has escaped that fate. The trowel would not be confident in that until at least two moon cycles had passed without signs or symptoms. Mappo had recalled an event where he had willed himself into a murderous rage, and the memory of, memories of those he killed remained with him. If the soul taken's poison was still in him, he would take his own life before allowing that to be unleashed. His Carol was still using the broom in an attempt to sweep the chimney, spilled taking still speaking to himself about creepy crawlies and no unwelcome guests. Mappo decides to ask the uh, question of Iskaral has, if he has resided here long. Iskaral replies that it's irrelevant and that importance lies solely in deeds done and goals achieved. Life is about pre preparation, and he lives to prepare. 
He tells Satrell that preparations are finally complete. All Mappo could say to this was, where is Icarium? A life given for a life taken. Tell him that. And he's in the library. The nuns left a handful of books, mainly devoted to pleasuring themselves. Best to read those in bed, I found. Mappo shook himself as the drone of his carriel talking had discouraged Mappo from asking another question. The child pushed himself upright and asked where the library was. His Carell tells him some crazy way of getting there, and Mapple suggests a simpler path. Uh, his Carell is kind of a fucking dick, uh, and he's a crazy dick. I'm kind of enjoying his theatrics, but I feel like there's some danger there for our characters. Uh, he's, yeah, he might be my favorite character so far. He's, he's a fucking lucid motherfucker. Like, he's just all over the wall and none of his ramblings make any they're just so ominous you know like like i said he just reminds me of professor farnsworth he's just kind of a loose cannon and just doesn't give a shit um yeah i i I don't know i enjoy him because he's so goofy yeah it almost seems like he must have like add or something right yeah or some type of adhd what i don't know which one's which but yeah it's just the whole squirrel (laughs) oh there's a squirrel yeah i do enjoy him do i think he's trustworthy no i don't no i feel like our characters here definitely are picking up on that but i mean he's essentially shoving this fucking broom up a chimney trying to kill spiders and Mappo, you know, in, in all good, like, logic is like, why don't you just use fire? And he's just like, no, 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 not wood. Fucking shit. Let's light the shit on fire. <laughs> right. He's, 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 he's a special kind of guy. Right. Yeah. I thought it was cool that we got a little bit, uh, a little bit more lore into the Divers and Soul Taken um, that have bit or scratch someone and apparently this causes a sickness so um i guess it starts off with hallucinations and then bestial madness and then death so i thought that was kind of cool a little small little tidbit uh yeah that doesn't sound great for somebody who has been attacked by one though no not at all not at all i didn't i didn't find i mean like there's definitely some tidbits in here but it was Kind of a smaller section. I feel like it was really only like a page and a half. Um, but the thing that like really spoke to me was uh, the prep- The preparations are finally complete. And I'm going, what preparations? Preparations pertaining to Mapo and Icarium or the Convergence? Or potentially something different entirely. And I just, I don't like how crazy he's been acting comparatively to these lines, which sound way more ominous. You know, like... The way he says the whole preparing part is such a stark contrast to his crazy shit. You know, like it's like it's like if I was like running around throwing shit all over the place and then I stopped to tell you about something that is going to happen in your future. And then I just go back to throwing shit, you know, like, I guess that's how you're you're making a mess, Justin. Yes, it's there's shit. It's shit again. Um, um, the, the other thing that I thought was funny was him talking about the nuns and the, the books that the nuns had wrote about pleasuring themselves. And why did they need a book for that? Like they just couldn't figure that out. 
I mean, I think it was just, I mean, I, I just assumed it was like, uh, you know, uh, erotica, just uh, written erotica or romance novels, really. Um, and I just thought it was funny how he's just like, best to read those in bed, I found. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Uh, it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice little masturbation joke there. <laughs> Everybody's got urges. Yeah, that's right. Um, I guess the last thing that I had was, again, he kind of he tells Mappo to tell Icarium a life given for a life taken, which, again, seems to be another thing that he's just always saying. And is is this pertaining to Icarium? Like, is he going to have to sacrifice a life in order to regain his memories? Or does this take on a more mental or emotional meaning? Ooh, I hadn't thought about that. You know what I mean? But like, you'd have to give a part of himself up to get a part back, you know? There's got to be something there to it because it is mentioned a lot. It but is. That's an interesting way to look at it. Hmm. You know, like... I, I don't know how I feel about that yet. Well, because, you know, going back to, like, the prophecy of Jarjana and the whole, like, two will meet, a life given for a life taken, you know? Uh, there's two historians... Uh, life taken, life given, uh, Mappo and, and history. And yeah, all of this just kind of seems somehow related. I can't distinctively put any type of finger on it, but yeah, it's just like, does he have to give up his pursuit of his memories in order to allow, allow the land to remember, you know what I mean? Like, Something along those lines. I just, I guess I just, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty complicated because there's no information to go off of outside it's of just, small things, you know? It's just, I mean, it's kind of just deep. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if this sounds dumb, but like, cause it's gotta be, how many times have we heard a life given for life taken? I mean, all I can think of chapters like five or six times now. Yeah. So but is is the life already taken? Right. Who knows? I mean, it literally could mean anything. And now yeah. that I'm thinking about it, how does this relate to prod and pull? It you know? it kind of has that same feel to it, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't I don't how I don't know how we can uh explore more of that outside of just I'm pointing it out. Like, I feel like there's definitely something there. What it is, it could pertain to almost anything. Yeah, there, I, you're 100%. There's there's something to it, but I just, yeah, we're going to have to rifle, rifle some more. Yeah, but uh, outside of that, those are the only things that I really picked out um, from that really tiny section there. So you want to you wanna bring us, you want to bring us around town? The uh, last 400 meters around the track? Yep. All right. The etiquette breach was explained when Mappo entered the library and saw it doubled as a kitchen. Icarium sat at a table while servant slaved over a cauldron. Mappo said thanks, but no thanks on the soup within the cauldron. Icarium says the books are rotting and asks if Mappo is feeling better. Mappo says it appears that way. Icarium says it isn't soup in the pot, but laundry. If he wants food to look at the table behind them. Going back to his book, he says he's amazed, but Mappo interjects and says, with their isolation, he's surprised at his surprise. 
Carrying says, no, not these books, but Iskarl's own. There are books even he hasn't heard of. Mapo returned with a plate of food and looked over at Karim's shoulder, asking what is so surprising about the books. Karim was amazed at how frivolous these books were. They were gardening books and books about clams, and he was convinced the books were thousands of years old. And, Mapo thought, in a language he didn't think he would recognize or much less understand. Mapo thought about the last time he saw writing like this. He had been a guard, one of several who was escorting a village elder, it was autumn and raining. They had formed a semicircle and were facing north as seven robed figures appeared and each had a staff. Mappo watched the staff move, thinking they had serpent-like movement. He came to realize they were etching runes in the air, continuously changing as if someone was writing in the air. One of the elders removed their hood. This moment had changed Mappo's life. He quickly changed his train of thought. Quickly taking a seat, he asked if this was important. The carrier said he thought it was incredibly important because the civilization must have been rich. And the language also appears to be related to some seven cities dialects, but kind of more sophisticated. He also pointed out that the rune at the bottom of the book, he recognized it and knew he had seen it before somewhere. Mapo disregarded the fact that Icarium thought they were rich and that they were probably just lost in the details. The civilization could just as easily fall based on what it didn't know as much as what it did know. Gotho's folly was a prime example. He was aware of every little thing, and it was his downfall. And he knew that. Icarium thought Mapo must be feeling better because he was so pessimistic again. Anyways... He thinks that these support his theory that there was once a thriving people in Raraku and the Panpots in Odhan, and it could have even been the first hu human civilization that all others sprung from. Mapo thought to himself that he wanted Ikarim to stop thinking on this and asked how his knowledge would help them presently. Ikarim said it dealt with his obsession of time. Writing replaces memory and language, and language changes because of that, and that if he was illiterate, he would not be so forgetful, and jokes that he was only passing the time. Mapo says he has a more pressing concern, and that this is the place. Shadow was not one of his favorite cults. Assassins and worse, illusions and deceit. Iskarol Prust is putting on a show, but Mapo says he is not fooled by it, and that he knows he was expecting them and wanted to insert them into his schemes. It was risky to stay. Ikarium says that this place is where he will achieve his goal. Mapo says he was afraid of that answer and that he would need an explanation. Ikarium says he's not able to, but he has a suspicion. And when he is sure, he will explain. Can he wait? He formed the thought of another human in his mind's eye. In a raspy voice, he asked if he knew who they were. The elder nodded and said they were known as the Nameless Ones, who think not in years, but centuries. He called them the Chosen Warriors and asked Mapo what, what he could learn from patience. Mapo replied with a question. Patience? He can do nothing else with him but be patient. But he does not trust Iskarol Prost. While this was happening, Servant had begun to take laundry out of the cauldron with his bare hands. He called out to Servant, asking if he could speak, but he did not give a reply. The Carrium said it appears that he's turned a deaf ear to them likely at his master's command. But at the same time, every shadow would hear their words and bring them to their high priest. Babo said he didn't care if Iskarol knew he didn't trust him. Ikarium said Iskarol definitely 
knew more of them than they knew about him. As they left, Servant was still wringing laundry out like it was the happiest day of his life. You know, I'm not going to lie. I was a little confused by this section. Um, I feel like Mappo is having a lot of flashbacks. And, uh, you know, even the previous section, he had he had one. And I'm not I'm not sure what to make of that. You know, um, I know that they're just kind of Icarium is very enthralled in these books about history, you know, um, and yeah, I, I guess I, I just I don't I don't know what to say about it. Lost. Her yeah, the, the, I, I feel like for me, the hard part was where he, he's like like forms apparition or whatever you want to call it, you know, in his mind. And it's like having this short conversation. Um, I didn't really know what to make of that. Well, I mean, is he sick? Because I mean, it starts off oh. with hallucinations, hallucinations, right? Did not think, did not think of that at all. So, but I mean, everything else seems to point to the fact that he is okay. But if he doesn't trust Iskarel, well, then how can he trust the fact that? I mean, I guess he's gonna wait two moons, but I guess he's skeptical about Iskarel saying that he's. He's fine, but I just, I, I, those, yeah. This was kind of a weird section, and it is kind of hard to make heads or tails of it. I know Icarium makes a comment about the nuns books, um, you know, saying that they were, uh, or Mappo interjects that he was, because like when, you know, they're first introduced, when Mappo is first brought into the, or comes into the library and sees, you know, Icarium being so shocked by the books he he's immediately going to the nuns is kind of how i imagined like why are you you shouldn't be surprised by that you know right but yeah then he's talking about some different books altogether right exactly Uh, yeah it was kind of just weird all the way around yeah another little masturbation joke there um You know, oh, like, Justin. yeah, I'm surprised that you're surprised. I'm, you know, interjects and says that with their isolation, he's surprised at his surprised, like, you know, isolation, nuns, books about nuns pleasuring themselves. <laughs> so, yeah, but outside of the humor, I, I can't, I'm, I'm not finding much to tie to anything here. Uh, you know, I just like, what is, what are the whole, I mean, he has to be hallucinating. I mean, what what else would it be? Or or he's you know getting flashbacks or something. Uh, you know, maybe this is related to the life given, or you know, in order to give a life, you have to take a life. So maybe maybe Mappo has something to do with it. Maybe Mappo is getting Icarium's memories, and you know, I, I yeah, I guess I, I don't know. I'm probably way the fuck off, but I I don't know either. But I I mean these. Icarium and Mappo and Iskarol so far they've been like some of my favorite parts of this book just just because Iskarol's so fucking weird yeah and strange yeah Icarium's kind of got his moments and I'm just intrigued by his his memory loss and and Mappo you know covering for him right I really want to see where that goes yeah yeah and I mean like I'm fascinated with, you know, I guess I share with Icarium and his fascination for these older books. And, you know, it, it essentially kind of, I'm assuming based on what we're told here that these books are 
you know, describing, you know, the ways of, of Raraku's past. So I feel like that definitely has something to do with it. But yeah, Fucking I'm. Clam diseases and plants. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nuns. Riveting reading, plan. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I, I just, I, I, nameless ones and the chosen, you know, I just, I thought the whole part with Gothel's folly was cool as like an example um you know that his his downfall was pretty much was aware of fucking everything you know yeah so i can imagine that that maybe probably drove him insane in some way shape or form so i i I get the sense that mapo is kind of the only like level-headed one here but at the same time you kind of doubt that because of you know his his bite mark on the back and is he potentially hallucinating or you know, is it really yeah. a carrium that's the sane one here? Or is Carell like yeah. is he the sanest one of out of, out of the crazies? I mean, because that's kind of how it's leaning, I feel like. Right. Yeah. I I, I mean, I feel like I, I'm trying to come up with something to talk about, but I just I can't make any dang sense of, of what this has to do with really anything. And you know what, that's okay. Yeah, we don't have to beat a dead horse about it. I mean it's I mean, we can just kind of leave it there because I don't, I don't really have much to add either. I don't, you know, it's, it's kind of, I've, you know, as we've said before, it's just kind of uh, seems like it's going to set something up. Right. And I'm sure like, you know, maybe in this book, probably in this book, but we'll probably read something in, in the near future uh, regarding chapters down the line. And we're like, ah, remember that one chapter at the end of chapter three? And we're like, what the fuck is going on? I feel like there might be some, some ties later on in the book. Cause yeah. I feel like it's very rare for us to not make heads or tails of much. And this is definitely one of those sections where I can't for the life of me make, make heads or tails of anything. So I can only just suspect. And again, trust that uh, some explanations are coming or some things will make more sense later on. Right. Yeah, I, we'll get there. Like you said, we don't have too many of these sections, so. No, not at all. Not at all. But cool, dude. Uh, another three-hour episode. <laughs> yeah, this one uh, definitely flowed pretty good, though. I mean, it, the time always seems to fly when you and I talk. Yeah. So. I, that's a good sign, I think. Oh, Absolutely. Um, I was surprised when I looked at the time like 30 minutes ago. I'm like, holy shit. Uh, but yeah, it definitely helps when there's no technical issues. So uh, I'm thankful for that. <laughs> yeah, trust me, so am I. <laughs> well, should we uh, wrap this one up here? Wrap it up, wrap it in. Let it begin. All right. Well, cool, dude. Uh, great summary. Yeah, great summary. it was a good time. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to moving on to the next chapter here and, uh, um, you know, just working towards finishing the sub book, um, couple chapters left. And then, uh, I, th- I think it was December. I know my little fucking failed attempt here at a, a video didn't go very well. Um, but I think we are planning, I think I text you about it, but December 16th, We'll record with 10 very big books or some of them, all of them. Don't know, but that'll be cool to, uh, to work with them. I, I kind of feel like they're the, uh, the OGs of this deal. Yep. Yep. I would say so. Um, so that should be a good time. 
what do you think uh what do you think we'll talk about just what we've what we've read so far or yeah yeah i've, I've started to listen to their stuff I, i've only got through one episode but um i don't i, I want to get a little familiar with them and and kind of feel them out but uh i'm sure we'll have a good time oh absolutely it'll be a blast Every every side quest we've done has been a blast. This one won't so much be a side quest, but just to to have you know another somebody else in the Malazan community with us, you know, like we had with, with Mora and and she had with us when we were on her show. It was a lot of fun. So I, I can't imagine this will be any different. No, not at all. It'll be a blast. And then we've got so, uh, the holidays coming up, so um, I guess we're unsure of when uh we may we may record next week we may not so there may be a gap in in episodes here as far as time goes but we are also doing a side quest on uh aliens vazquez coming up as well so yeah yeah we'll have to we'll have to text about that and figure that out because i i I don't think we need to do that a chapter at a time i think we can probably tackle that in bigger chunks um, oh, absolutely! Yeah, I think that like we uh, could probably just read the book and then talk about it. Okay, I I, I was kind of thinking that too, and so I'm, I'm glad to hear you're on on board with that. But yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to read that when I'm not reading Dead House Gates and and then uh, talking to you about it. I'll probably have to watch Aliens again sometime after, and then uh, yeah, we'll have to work out a time with the author, but we'll we'll get her. I, I would probably think scheduling wise it'll probably be in january sometime somewhere is yeah. what will probably make more sense right yeah the beginning of just the year. yeah just like you said i i mean we don't know if we'll record next week if we can work it then i'm all for it if you are and and then jesus we're just about in december here already so mm-hmm. that's gonna go quick yeah i don't i don't know what'll happen christmas week and new year's week so yeah there'll probably be some some gaps in in episode releases uh as the year draws to a close but um i'm definitely i'm excited to keep going uh with dead house gates here i'm looking forward to reading chapter four so yeah for sure i'll probably but, read start it tomorrow <laughs> yeah yeah i will be doing that too as well uh cool well uh great episode sir uh uh enjoy the your day tomorrow yeah you too and we will talk soon it was great talking to you tonight thanks justin yeah thanks derek all right have a good night yeah take care